Are we trying to win a battle or are we trying to be funny? Uh, it's up to you. It's literally a question I ask myself every day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month, we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month, we're reading Carpe Jugulum or The Lanker Tea Party. <laughs> and our guest is actor, singer, and cabaret star Gillian Cosgriff. Welcome, Jill. Hello, mates. Oh, it's so lovely to have you on the podcast. We've been talking about having you on forever, it seems. Oh, that's so nice. Well, I'm happy to be here. I think you've been on this since the beginning. Yeah. Um, and we recently had you down for a different book because this one's not your favorite. You you uh, actually reached out to me and identified your favorite, if I remember rightly. I did. My favorite is Masquerade, which it's just like maybe the year that I was like 15 or 16, I just would read it and then get to the end and read it again. <laughs> <laughs> it is an extraordinary book. What did you oh, love man. about it so much? I, so I'm very music theatre based. That's my degree in inverted commas, if we can call it that. Um, <laughs> so I just love all the like phantom parallels and all the kind of, you know, just the theatre of it. I loved, but I love these characters and I love the witches. So it was, it was really nice to read this one, which I've only read once or twice. I actually mm. couldn't remember it. In my head, I thought it was the one about, um, Otto von Schrick about the eels and the oh yeah the photos, truth because yeah 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 um yes the truth which I also is actually one of my other favorites but um this was great rereading this one I loved it it was such yeah. an, a nice treat to jump back into it yeah I don't think I've read it since it came out like twenty odd years ago so it was yeah it was a real treat for me too because I I loved it so much uh, but we'll, we'll get to that but you um I mean you did do a musical theater degree and uh, I mean I let's not bring the mood down it's a tough time to be <laughs> in the performing arts right now as all of us know Yeah but you you had a pretty spectacular gig before all of this shut everything down Yeah I mean um Harry Potter and the Cursed Child Yeah Yes whenever that starts being a job again I will be back in it Um yeah, yeah so I had done about a year and a half in that as Moaning Myrtle and then I changed characters maybe two weeks before the shutdown. So I did two weeks as Delphi Diggory. And now I'm just trying to keep it in my head. Yeah. <laughs> if when I ever go back. There's going to be, you're going to have to have some sort of extended rehearsal period before you can start up again, obviously. Yes, I imagine so. We have been doing like cast readings on Zoom, which have become <laughs> progressively less involved. Like in the early days, everyone was like grabbing lighters and things to kind of, you know, attempt their like magic tricks at home and uh -huh. now it's just sort of pop in say your lines and jog off so oh. Maybe we're gonna we should... have to play um do you know my friend who this um afterwards oh sure i bet i yeah. do know your friend who this i bet i yeah. love your friend who this i miss well, they're a pretty good friend who and they, they also that every so often oh heaven <laughs> a scandalo <laughs> But you've, I mean, that's just the, the latest thing you've done in your career. You've had a long career in musical comedy and cabaret in Melbourne. How do you, how do you 
transition from doing your own stuff like that to doing such a big production with a bunch of other people? Well, you get paid every week, even in January, um, which is <laughs> oh my just unbelievable. Like, it's like a dream. I thought I would get over it, but even like a year and a half in, I would be like, oh, I, I got paid again. You know, and <laughs> I don't mean uh, this to sound too like naive, but I just, it's kind of, um, and you don't have to invoice anyone, you don't have to harass anyone, and you're not in charge of tracking, like, I know that that sounds very capitalist, but genuinely that is kind of unbelievable. No, I mean, um, I think we feel it in our bones. Like we're so happy for you that that was the case and we hope yeah. it will be again before too long. That, yeah. what, an, what an amazing experience to have. Yeah. And I, I mean, look, we could do a whole podcast asking you about that production because it is, if you get a chance to see it when it reopens, listeners, I do. I mean, look, it's it's tricky at the moment for various political and ethical reasons, but the show itself and everyone involved in it in Melbourne is phenomenal, I have to say. I was very lucky to see it in the two weeks when you were performing your new role. Oh, you and did? Yeah, yeah. I went to like the one where they invited all the press to come and see it again after the cast change. Oh, um, great. And, uh, oh, it was it was great. Anyway. We could talk about that for hours and hours and hours, but we're actually here to talk about... Some of us haven't seen it. Oh, Aww. yeah. We have to... <laughs> What's the hashtag? Keep the secrets. Hashtag keep the secrets. Got to keep the secrets. So we will say no more. We will say no more. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. A wink's as good as a nod to a blind bat. Oh, I knew there was a segue in there somewhere, but we do <laughs> no have... no bats in this book. We have some... That, um, there's at least one, I'm sure. But anyway, we, we do need to uh, talk about a book for hours and hours. Which one um, should we talk about? Um, should I grab the one closest to me? Or? No, no, I think I think we've picked one. I think we'll talk about <laughs> Carpe Jugulum. And actually, before, the usually first thing we do is read the blurb, but I do just want to talk about the title momentarily because do you think it should be, how would you say it? Is it Carpe Jugulum or Carpe Jugulum? If it's I like- say Jugulum because it's the jugular, mm. but I also have not studied Latin, so I'm not sure how that whole thing works. But purely on a medical basis, the J seems like it should be a hard J. Mm. What do you think, <laughs> Strongly, Jill? Strongly agree. Also, here's a weird fact I found out this week. Did you know that at the ATMs in the Vatican, you can do transactions in Latin? It's what? the only place in the world. What? I've been there and I didn't know that and I wish I did. <laughs> and I went to their post office to get like a to make sure I got Vatican City stamps on my postcards. So I was like, that's cool. Yeah. But yeah, that's awesome. That's weird. Yeah. I have like a great, great, what would he be? Be like a great, great uncle. He's he's dead now, but he was quite high up in the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and he he lived in Vatican City for a while, and then he was like a like a really high up guy in the in the Catholic Church in Sydney when he died, and there was like a public funeral, and thousands of people went, and I'd never met him in my life. He's like my grandmother's uncle. Um, on the obviously on the Irish Catholic side, not the Irish Protestant side. I have both, so we internally i'm just fighting with myself all the time so i identified with this book a great yes, deal very much <laughs> i had to briefly sketch out a family tree in my head i was like uncle how how are you descended from him if he and then i was like wait no that's not that's not how uncles work so yeah yeah <laughs> it's fine anyway i would also say carpe jugulum <laughs> okay yeah we went on a ride there um but that's all right <laughs> let's get into it with a, a reading of the blurb miserly oats has not picked a good time to be a priest He thought he'd come to the mountain kingdom of Lanka for a simple little religious ceremony. Now he's caught up in a war between vampires and witches, and he's not sure there is a right side. There are the witches, young Agnes, who is really in two minds about everything, 
Magrat, who is trying to combine witchcraft and nappies, Nanny Og, who is far too knowing, and Granny Weatherwax, who is big trouble. And the vampires are intelligent, not easily got rid of with a garlic enema or by going to the window, grasping the curtains and saying, I don't know about you, but isn't it a bit stuffy in here? They've got style and fancy waistcoats. They're out of the casket and want a bite of the future. Mightily Oates knows he has a prayer, but he wishes he had an axe. That's a really weird framing of the book to have it all like around Mightily Oates, don't yeah, you think? Yeah, It is interesting. You know, it reminds me of, you know, the collector's library editions, the nice new editions that are kind of cloth bound and have the sort of very stylized covers. Kind of like the invitations to the to the christening thing. Yeah, yes. But the one for Carpe Jugulum is like a picture of the castle and a little silhouette of Mightily Oates's, you know, walking up towards the castle. The witches aren't even on it. Yeah, it's so weird. It just, it doesn't read as a Mightily Oates book at all. Yeah, no, he's a... He's a B-plot character. At best. Or a supporting act. He wouldn't be nominated in the best category. He'd be the best supporting. Yeah, I guess it's his only book in that sense. Like, it's the only one he's in. Um, It's also the vampire's only book. That's true. That's true. And then there's not that many new characters in this apart from antagonists. And our first Igor, or Igor, this is another pronunciation question. We run into this all the time because you (laughs) read these things. You don't say them outside. I can't wait for us to get to Hodges. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fun one. Um, but do you think, is it Igor or Igor? It's Igor, I'm pretty I, sure. I say Igor. Me too. Yeah, okay. But I think I think there's I would a probably mock there. someone who said Igor, to be honest. Whoa. Because it seems like I wouldn't have entertained that possibility, but I'm happy to be wrong and mocked in return. So. <laughs> no, it's no, it's a mocking-free zone. We're in a witch's book. There's lots of mocking. Okay. Well, all right. That's true. There's plenty of mocking. But it, I mean, look, it starts with, there's no cosmic turtle business, Liz. You must have been very happy about this. I was thrilled. There was some cosmic business, but yeah, they did a little bit of the elephants and the turtle going through space, but that was just like a, a side, not like three pages of musing on the nature of the universe. Yeah. We've established, uh, Jill, that Liz really doesn't like it when... It starts with like, and there was a turtle swimming through space. She's not into mm. that stuff. I, I feel you. I feel mostly the same way. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. Too much of it. Although they do often begin with nature as well. Mm. Like there's one that talks about lightning hitting the crags like an old man trying to get an elusive blackberry pip out of his teeth. Oh, that's a good line. I can't remember which one that is. If I remember it, it's probably the truth or masquerade. Yeah. Okay. It's masquerade. The wind howled. The storm crackled on the mountains. Lightning prodded the crags like an old man trying to get an elusive blackberry pip out of his false teeth. This starts sort of with nature, or maybe supernature, because it starts with a falling bird, but not just any old falling bird. But we don't know that at this point, so it's like a mystery. What is falling from the heavens and what has made the Nakmak Fiegel kick up a stink? Yeah, it's true. And i got to confess, because um, I've been watching X-Files for the first time, I was like, oh, yeah, there's a thing falling from the sky, it's, it's an alien. And I'm like, wait, no, that's not this. That's the other thing. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just very strong imagery of that. Mm, yeah, falling star kind of business. But also, yeah, as you say, this is where we meet, for the very first time, a certain species of tiny blue men. Now, we've already talked about the We Free Men, uh, the first Tiffany Aching book, where they're a major uh, feature of the book. 
But this came first, uh, Carpe Jugulum, and this is the first time we meet the Nak Mac Fiegel on these couple of pages. Oh, they're a, they're a delight, but they're also quite different. Like, you know, when you go back and you watch like the first film in a series or you read the first book in a series and things are there, but they're not quite what you come to love them as. Yeah. The, mm. They're like that in this book. Whereas the witches are like at their most witchy because this is the fifth and, and kind of the last book in the main witches series. But yeah, the Nakmak Fiegel are a bit, they're a bit off. Like they're still great, but they're not what they become. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I just, I love, I love them. I love them as these weird Scottish Smurfs where I can't understand half the time what they're saying. I briefly <laughs> lived in Glasgow by accident when I was 20. Oh no. And I was in a band, which was very strange. What? With a man who I'm certain was a drug dealer. Yeah, <laughs> and this like giant grand piano made of glass. It was, it, it, like, it feels like a fever dream now. But he would call me on the phone to organize a rehearsal and he'd be like, Hi, Jella, it's Tom. I'm just calling about a meeting. Where, where did you? And, and I'd be like, and there's only so many times you can ask someone to repeat themselves. And I would be like, <laughs> just text me. Yeah. Oh, wow. Anyway, it- he felt like a Nack McFeagle <laughs> living large. Visiting Scotland is the only time I've ever not understood someone speaking English in an accent. Like mm. the only time. And I was only in Edinburgh, but I'm pretty oh, no. sure that yeah, people Glasgow who came is- to talk to me were Glaswegian because I understood most of the Edinburgh people just fine. Yeah. Um, but in this book, they're not speaking English. They're speaking this sort of weird, slightly Scots, but every now and then there's like actual Gaelic words in it as well. So I think he's just, and I'm pretty sure most of them are made up. Like it's not real Scots or Gaelic. So we're not supposed to understand it. I don't think we're just supposed to get a feel for mm. what it is. And every now and then there is a joke word in there, which is kind of fun, but it's not the comedy Scots accent that they end up with in the Tiffany Aching books where. It's a lot of fun to read it out. I mean, it's a lot of fun to read this out, but also I, I can't really read it out loud. Like, it's like <laughs> there's so few words in it that are recognisable. Um, but, yeah, they're great. But it's an exciting time to be in Lanka because it's it's nearly the naming day for the royal baby. Mm-hmm. I actually kind of love Magrat and Verence, even if when they first get together back in Weird Sisters, it's a bit weird and I was a bit like, I like them together, but I don't quite like how they get there. Um, but by this stage, I'm like, yeah, they, they they work. And I love Margaret finding all these new things to do with her life. And yeah. I like where they've gotten to as well, because it feels like, you know, when people are around each other for long enough, they to get real Enid Blyton about things, they've knocked each other's corners off a bit. So they, you might not have been the right shape exactly to begin with, but after a long time, you sort of start to grow together to fit your own thing, but you fit together and it feels like they are that like they're each independent but they work as a team so i kind of liked that as someone who was a bit like ugh, when they had their thousand year kiss or whatever during weird sisters um but yeah i kind of liked it and i also kind of liked that it visually was kind of like a satire of the sleeping beauty opening scene with the fairy godmothers and things like that was kind of kind of cool yeah, I love it. I, I, there's so much in this book that I want to talk about that I love about women in threes and how you have to fill the, which I'm sure we'll get into. But that's part of what I love about Magrat too is that you get to see her journey from kind of maiden to mother, but it, because she becomes a queen also, but she's the queen of Lanka. So she's not, <laughs> she's like a very, in the ranking of queens, she's still probably quite a low status queen. Um, <laughs> 
So, yeah, I really love it. And I love this whole parallel to Sleeping Beauty of these, like, you know, three fairy godmothers, even though one of them is the actual mother, with Granny missing and the invitation lost. And, yeah, I I love all of that. And I also spent a lot of this book thinking about, like, um, Magra and Verence as, like, progressive royals. Yeah. And thinking about like Harry and Megan as just like a sidebar of being, even though they're not really under the, you know, kind of umbrella of a royal family in that way, but just because Lanka is so itself, um, <laughs> he has this real challenge in trying to, you know, push the boundaries of that. Yeah, oh, I love yeah. it. And the whole yeah. thing about he's trying to introduce democracy or these new ideas and people go, yep, yep, that's very good and just ignore it. Yes. Yeah. That's so much more frustrating. <laughs> people being like, no, no, we don't like that. We'll talk it through or whatever. But they're like, no, no, that sounds good. And then just put it in the maybe later basket because how mm. do you fight that? Yeah. I think because it, it's interesting that, um, you know, now he reminds us of those younger, more recent royals. But when this was written, like they were barely born, um, you know. Mm. So he's much more, I think, the influence there is more like Prince Charles, who always had this, I mean, for whatever his faults, he always seems to have a genuine kind of interest in the well-being of people, even if he is a bit, I, I mean, look, I don't know how else to, he's just a weirdo in some ways, but he, you know, but he does seem to care a bit. And I think that's what Verence is kind of modelled on. But their whole thing also is that the two of them weren't born royals, like they came to it after they're already mostly formed as people. So that probably also impacts on how they approach their new position in society. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. And actually, his education in the Fool's Guild comes up a couple of times in this book, just in little ways, which I also just love as a background of a royal. <laughs> like I think they should all, which again is a bit, you know, Prince Charlesy because he was famously a massive comedy fan. Like he loved the goons and Monty Python and, and all that stuff. And like that's why they keep getting invited to royal command performances because he loved them so much. So yeah, I think there's, it's in his DNA, but I love, I love that about him as well. I just put this to both of you. Um, I found it really interesting that, like, to me, one of the major themes of this was modernizing versus being traditional. And both Verence and Magrat are pushing towards being more modern, wanting things to be a democracy, etc. And then the antagonists, the vampire family, are doing the same. Like, they're both trying to get away from tradition, and yet one set is seen as the wrong approach and one is kind of seen as the right approach. Like I'd, I'd argue that we all think that Verence is probably mostly onto a good thing, like trying to push towards democracy, have less monarchy, but also think that the vampires are doing the wrong thing because that's kind of the moral of the book. But yet they're doing the same thing at the core. And so like that's an interesting divide in well, the book's message, I thought. It's funny because to me I read it and it's weird when you read things that are um, – like predate the thing they remind you of i suppose yeah um which i know i know we're going to talk about twilight later so. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. but reading this i was like oh the vampires are gentrification that's what they are oh, it's just like yeah. don't worry we'll come in we'll make it nice here it's not nice right now but this is the nice way and you'll like what we have to bring and it'll be better for you whereas i think verence is absolutely pushing for progress but within like a deeply seated awareness of like this community and the traditions and the history of the people and seems genuinely to want to serve that in a way that he thinks will be beneficial. <laughs> they just, they just don't see it or want it. Yeah. Um, 
that's the difference between the two for me, but I do think that's a really interesting point. You know, different kinds of modernization and pushing things forward. Yeah. We'll get to it at the end, but it's just the way that the plot ultimately plays off to me is kind of like tradition was right. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and Granny sort of is a weird kind of force of that, you know, like it's because she never changes. I'm really, cause, cause I haven't read the later Tiffany Aching books. I'm really fascinated to know where her story goes. Cause I know she shows up in, in some of them some more, but at this point, you know, she's just reiterating my way is the right way. And, and it is, it always is. And she doesn't really change or learn or grow very much, but that's okay. Cause she's kind of awesome the way she is. But at the same time, I think there's a thing in this, like where she, she disappears for a while where it's almost like basically things will not change, but at some point she will say, right, my time is over. Now you do what you want. But until that time we do it my way. That's the kind of impression I get from her. Yeah, but then you get this cool parallel too with Madeley Oates, who's clinging so desperately to like the history of thousands Mm. of years of religion. And then actually when he dispenses with that is when he's able to progress, is actually he's able to make change. So it's kind of a a flip side of that, I guess. Yeah. When people have derided, as as, uh, I was recently researching, you know, in the past people have derided Pratchett for not being you know, very serious or complicated. Like they see him as a sort of this populist comedy author who doesn't need to be taken seriously. But anytime you sort of think about what are the themes that he's writing about, it this, it, it goes all over the place. There's everything in these books. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. It goes both ways. Oh, man. Uh, and I, I had never thought about this as gentrification, but as soon as you said it, I was like, well, of course. <laughs> like, like, Especially of course with the town right. being called escrow, that like really leans into that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was great. Um, but there's a lot of things that get set up at the start here, of course. Um, we meet all the witches again. The, the witches have changed their lineup because this is the book after Masquerade. So technically, Margaret has retired. She's now being the queen instead of one of the three witches, which means that the coven is Granny, Nanny, and Agnes. Agnes Knit, who we met way back in Lords and Ladies when she was pretending to be called Perdita or Perdita. How would you say that? Per- Perditax. <laughs> yeah. And now that's become like this sort of alternate personality, which in this book goes the next step from where it was at in Masquerade. She's a very important character in this book. And for the first half of the book, basically, it's nearly all her and Nanny Og, uh, which I love because Nanny Og is my favourite. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't deny Granny Weatherwax being one of the all-time greatest characters in fiction, but my favourite is Nanny Og. Um, and she and Agnes, like, working together, and, and indeed alone, is a real joy of this book. They really get some time to shine that in a lot of the other witches' books, you know, a lot of the focus is on Granny instead. Yeah, I love that. Also, I just loved – it really surprised me, this book, but it reading it feels like an action movie. Yeah. <laughs> And so this kind of like buddy cop duo of like of Agnes and Nanny Og is so unexpected. And then you also get that kind of like um, road movie vibe for the section where you've got Mightily Oates and Granny Weatherwax on the donkey, mm. which I love too. But it just goes like the clappers. Like it just, it really took me by surprise, you know, because sometimes with the witches you do get more thinking time. And this one is just like, you're straight in there with, you know, vampires and everything just from the get-go. Yeah. yeah. It's non-stop as well. Like, you can't skip any sections. Like, a lot of books you could probably, like, sort of have half a brain through it. But this one, 
every page matters. Totally. We've said many times that, you know, Pratchett's writing feels very cinematic and that's partly, you know, he doesn't use chapters. He, he just skips from one scene to the other. He'll cut back. And in this book, he does it a lot. Little bits of plot are chopped up and, and served to you as in these little, little tiny hilarious scenes. But when you put them all together, it's like, oh, look at that. Look at what happened there. You know, and it's so, yeah, it feels real cinematic and real exciting. And I think he really nails the pace in this one too. Um, with some of the early ones, we really felt like, you know, it, it goes along really well and then the ending is very sudden. Whereas this one, I think it really builds to a great climax. And then there's like about a 20-page section right at near the end of the book where everything wraps up and it's very satisfying. And then there's still like another 10 pages left to have a bit of a come down. It's, um, yeah, it just feels really good. But should we focus on... First of all, the naming day and what's going on at that, like, because where the major players are, we've got Magrat in the castle with her baby, which is yet to be named. Um, Nanny is playing both indoors and outdoors to get the maximum amount of food. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so good. An approach which I respect deeply. <laughs> mm. yeah, and, yeah, And I like that she has to fill up on the good stuff before dealing with the fit fiddly canapes and the fizzy wine that she's gotten quite fond of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on the path, on the way in, we've got... The vampires, we don't know they're vampires yet, but that's slowly revealed along their, their journey because there's an Igor and then we realize they're the family. And then we get a brief cameo from Cassinanda, who thankfully does not get eaten, but that's how we sort of discover there's something quite off about these people. Yeah, just on that quickly, I was so happy to see him again and I was sure he would be in more of the book because I remember him being in more stuff. But I just think I just think I loved him so much in Witches Abroad that... I imagined he was in way more books than he is because he's really I did only exactly in. the same thing. Yeah. And I was sure he was going to come back, like who he's going to turn up at the party. And no, it's just that one scene where he's watching from the bushes. Yeah, I was. I was, I was sad. I was waiting for him like the whole time. So he was like hovering at the sides, being like, "Yeah, when, when's his moment coming?" And it just never did. I'm like, why? Yeah, that feels like something that could have gotten cut in an edit. Yeah. Yeah. I guess he wanted to remind us of the character, but didn't want to include him. I, I mean, there's a lot of characters already in this book. Probably, he didn't need to be there. So I guess it's like a nice, fun Easter egg for those of us who love him. But And yeah. it adds stakes to the stakes. <laughs> um, it adds <laughs> stakes to the, um, the, the scene where the other person's, person's like taken, because that means we can watch it from the outside, from a character's point of view, and be glad that he's not actually in as much danger anymore. Hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm. But then we've got Granny who's sitting at home waiting for something. We don't know quite what it is. And then finally she gets summoned, but it's not to what she thinks it's going to be. It's to Mrs. something that's Ivy, gone horribly yeah. wrong with the pregnancy. Yeah. And this is very similar to that scene in, is it Lords and Ladies? or No, it's in Masquerade when they're on the way to Ankmore Pork where they stop off and there's a similar kind of thing where there's a sick cow and there's a sick baby and she makes the deal with death. And this is, yeah, very similar scene kind of setting the stakes of Granny Weatherwax gets these things done. But also there's that great line where the like, um, I don't midwife. know, like the midwife is like, oh, go and get the father. And she's like, he's no part in this. She's like, no, but he's like, no, he's no part in this. Like, yeah, yeah it's just, it's real good. And the two layers of that, like, I originally was like, oh, yeah, he's no part of this because like he shouldn't have the choice over, over what happens to his wife it's it's literally no part of that but the other edge to that is granny's softer side which is that she doesn't want to place that emotional burden on this man she's like he hasn't done anything to me well i don't want to hurt him in this way because and i hadn't even 
gotten the chance to think about that at that point. But yeah, because no matter how it turned out, he would have been horribly burdened by that decision for the rest of his life. So, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because she does take on so much of the um, kind of emotional labor and the actual physical labor too throughout the whole series. There was a line in this that I loved that I wrote down that I'd forgotten about, which was that the reward for toil had been more toil. If you dug the best stitches, they gave you a bigger shovel. Yeah. Where it's just like, well, you're good at this, so have more of it, which is such classic Granny Weatherwax material and um, familiar ground for her. I had actually mixed them up in my head, and I was like, oh, this is the one where she has the card game with death, Hmm. Um, that I was really surprised at the way it kind of, you know, plays out so simply. Yeah. And I think that that makes what happens next cut, like, more deeply because – She's had to take on this quite like emotionally difficult thing. And then as is revealed, she thinks she hasn't been invited to the naming ceremony, even mm-hmm. though everyone took great pains to give her the grandest invitation, the heaviest gold, slip it, like put it in the safe spot and it's been taken. She doesn't know that. So I can see how she's kind of feeling, oh, I do all this for the town. I do all of this stuff. I take on all of the burdens and they won't even invite me to this. And no one sees what I'm doing. And based on what, Nanny says things have been not great in her mind for a while, so it kind of is like the last straw. Hmm. It is a tricky thing when you see a character like that, that, you know, she always downplays where it's like, I don't want any fuss, I don't want any bother. But you want a bit of fuss. Yeah. <laughs> Every now- you want the option to reject the fuss. You want it to be offered, I think, is the thing. And that, that's 100%. so much part of granny's character in every way like she's she just wants people to do what she wants them to do without her ever having to ask you know and which is paralleled by the whole sequence with her and oats where constantly he's pretending that she's helping him when he's helping her because she can't show any weakness you know that's such a part of her character and it's just those little yeah those little opposites and it's it's the fundamentals of headology as well you know which is what she's famous for it's funny too, though, because we're always presented with Nanny as the mother and Granny Wax's, Weatherwax as the other one, the crone <laughs> or the hag. But, you know, I think a lot of that depends on what kind of a mum you have. <laughs> like, <laughs> no tea, yeah. no shade. But this idea of being like, I just wanted, I just want to do everything my way and I, that's what I want. And I, you know, it's no big deal and I'll just do all this, but you still need people to say thank you is certainly a quality that I've seen and know in many mothers. <laughs> like there is stuff about her that you're like, nah, some mums are like this. It's just that it's not our kind of historically accepted idea of the mother as the nurturer, mm-hmm. even yeah. though it's like she gets shit done and that kind of, that's what being a parent is about a lot of the time, I think. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. It's interesting to watch what kind of parent, Magra is becoming too to give us another dimension on that because she's a bit of a helicopter at the start but also she's quite practical and then also and Nanny has elements of this too but she's just like my child can do no wrong like she's there's that bit where she said oh yeah she said her first word what was it blup it's like that's not a word (laughs) she's two weeks old or how old she is um yeah it's just I think one of the greatest things about the witch's books is you have so many, um, like, because Pratchett himself suffers from this problem where in a lot of his books, there is like just that one woman who's part of the main cast. You know, if you look at something like Sorcery, there's pretty much just Kanina the Barbarian or Kanina the Hairdresser. Uh, and, you know, that, that's it. And you just see this one facet. Whereas the witches are all, each of them are such rich characters. And then there's like four of them in this book. And you're like, yeah, this is awesome. Um, 
and they're just so five if you count Perdita. Well, yes, yes. <laughs> I think that she's throwing off the number of witches in a coven by adding uh, two at once. But yeah, she's annoyed at not being invited and spends the time at home and doesn't go. Which I would argue that she's not annoyed; she's hurt because mm, um, she doesn't sort of question it. She doesn't sort of go, "How dare they not invite me?" She's kind of like, "Oh, well, that's what they've decided to do," which is different. Yeah, I mean, we'll, there's a listener question about this, but I, I feel like this is the vampire's mental influence as much as it is the act of her not receiving the invitation. Because I feel like if she was in her right mind and everything was okay. Granny would just have gone yeah. with or without an invitation. So I, I read this very much as they're getting to her because she later says like they were getting to me even in my own cottage. So I think it's not just the missing invitation. It's also the vampires are already, you know, through the magpies maybe impinging on her mind. Well, do you think it's like a poetic thing or a literal thing that it is magpies that stole her invitation? Like, is that literally the vampires taking it and putting it into action like a series of events or is that just like a poetry thing i think i think it's deliberate i think they absolutely do it and i think there's there's a few little hints of that in their dialogue as they're on the way to lanka because they talk about having already you know sussed the lay of the land and they know what they've got to do and they think that they've already made sure she won't be a problem i i, I think it's absolutely deliberate on their part and i wasn't sure if that's that's them messing with her headology or if that's them literally interfering by stealing the invitation like they could have just been putting in doubts in her mind, but the actual hiding of the invitation, I wasn't sure if they deliberately did that or if that was just something that also happened. But because of the whole magpie, magpire thing, it seems like is probably literal, but not necessarily. Yeah, by the end, I feel like it's literal. I don't feel like it in the beginning. But it's Mm. also like a nice thing of what you get with Granny so often, which is when people think she's doing something that she isn't necessarily doing, you know, which is like throughout this whole book is like, (laughs) Mm. she's in the baby, she's in the baby, or like, she's in Agnes, no, it's too crowded in there, she's in this, (laughs) you know, and the way that it gets revealed. And just even the, the idea that she's put herself anywhere else is enough to make you be like, is it me, is it you? Like you get so, you know, it creates that kind of paranoia that you come up with it even if it isn't actually happening yeah and she like so powerful it's outside of the book because i was like it's that person no it's that one so i was doing the same thing from my safe position outside of the book (laughs) yeah you weren't you weren't worried that granny had put herself into you the reader although that would have been imagine that like yeah she broke the fourth wall (laughs) also honestly i could use that it would be so practical and helpful i'd get a lot done Yes. I'd invite that. <laughs> yeah, but for it was sure. It's kind of like that meme of, you know, um, that still of Leonardo DiCaprio from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where he's pointing at the screen and that's become like a thing for like, you know, the first one was like when they say the title of the TV show in the TV show and he's like pointing at it. I was kind of, That was like me every time I thought I'd figure out who Granny had projected herself into. <laughs> it was, uh, it's such a satisfying conclusion, but we, we won't get too far ahead of ourselves um, because, yeah, she's called off to deal with the with the – the troublesome birth. She comes home. Meanwhile, at the party, things are progressing. Um, Agnes is meeting the new priest, Mightily Oates, um, who's got a great Omnian name because he's an Omnian priest who's going to be doing the christening ceremony or the naming ceremony, as it is called in, in Lanka. Um, and uh, what a great character he is. I really, I really loved him. Yeah, he's heaven. I just love... I love the idea of someone who has committed their whole life to a religion and a faith, but is smart enough to be able to go, oh, there's some 
incongruence. <laughs> you know, like Reese talking about trying to work out all the different great floods and, you know, whether they were the same one. And yeah. yeah. I just like that no one ever speaks directly down to him about it or, you know, directly judges him, but does just go, you know, like where he talks about um, brother wandering in the desert and not eating meat and Agnes going, was there meat to eat in the desert? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I love it. When I was a kid and we were meant to give up, we were raised Catholic, um, we were meant to give up stuff for Lent. I used to upset my mum by saying I would give up marzipan. <laughs> just like... <laughs> I don't eat marzipan, but also I never break my promise at Lent. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which I mean, you know, obviously is uh, dodging the point, but mm. but uh, yes, I think I think it's a uh, <laughs> it's a it's a good way to get around it. I was just trying to find that quote um, about how he's just one of those people who, even if you're a nice person, he inspires bullying in you. And I was kind of like, <laughs> that's just such a good descriptor because yeah. there are those people, and it's horrible. But yeah, yeah, we used to call it a punchable face. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. We were like, you're not bad. You've done nothing wrong. And yet, a fist is forming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, that's a perfect description. Oh, mm. poor old Mightley. I mean, and he's trying to do, he's trying to do his best. Um, Nanny takes an instant dislike to him. Uh, just has, does not want a bar of him. There's that great line early on where she's talking to him and it just says, uh, Nanny could turn her back on you while looking you right in the eye. And I'm like, yes, that's what she's doing. Um, mostly because of the Omnian's history and them being famous for burning witches. And there's so many great lines about that culminating in that one near the end where Granny talks about how you never burned any witches. You might have burned some old ladies. You didn't burn a witch. And you're like, whoa. <laughs> Oof. True. True in the, the real world. thing is a big, like, dare I say, motif throughout the whole thing as well. Like, I was... I noted like all of the different times that fire came into it. And it's just a really interesting, if you just like, if you wanted to write an English essay for year 10 about it, you absolutely could do like a, a decent 2000 words on just the role of fire as symbolism in this book. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I thought of that, but that's absolutely true. Oh, wow. Yeah, the good words don't burn, or the words that matter don't burn is like, yeah, <laughs> A plus material. Yeah. Right. That's good. But look, we, we have this party. There's going to be the naming. Margaret's a bit freaked out because she's like, Granny's not here. She's supposed to be the godmother. And Nanny has to step in. And Nanny's like, oh, well, I guess I can do it. <laughs> like, uh, she's fine with it. But she's like also poking, literally poking Mightily Oats with a stick while he's doing it to make sure he doesn't say anything too Omnian or religious. And they do the ceremony and Margaret has been very careful to write the note about what her daughter's name is going to be. And Mightily looks at it and he reads it out and she is named Esmeralda Margaret Note Spelling of Lanka, <laughs> which <laughs> is such a, oh, yeah, wow. One of our listeners um, said it reminded them of Cake Rex, you know, the website where uh, people post pictures of cakes that have gone wrong where they've ordered them. <laughs> and there's so many where someone's written a note that's like, Please write happy birthday in blue icing and don't misspell blah, blah, blah. And they write the whole thing because mm -hmm. they're just taking it too literally. Uh, it's, yeah, it's so good. And it spawns off that whole section about the names around Lanker because everyone's really literal there. And my favorite is James, what the hell is that cow doing in here, porch? Because <laughs> it just raises so many questions. Like, what is that cow doing in there? <laughs> uh, they needed to have a door installed, clearly. Or uninstalled. 
Yeah. Uh, at that moment, like, Granny kind of senses someone saying her name, but she doesn't understand the significance of that. And that's kind of the moment where she goes, sod this for a game of soldiers, I'm off, and leaves her cottage. Um, and uh, which is like, I mean, I, I we'll, we'll talk more about her decision to do this because I have very definite feelings about it, but it is quite shocking at the time. You're like, where's she going? What's she doing? Why? What's happening? And nobody even knows yet because the party just keeps going. But the whole party goes with a trepidation of like just waiting for her to arrive. Yeah. Which in the Sleeping Beauty parallel, I guess, is Maleficent rocking up and <laughs> flinging curses everywhere. Yes. Like even at the like just the idea of this party where the whole time everyone's like, is it now? You know, like, surely yeah. when they say the name, the doors should fling open and she'll be backlit and it'll be everything. Mm. So it feels really almost anticlimactic that she goes off to the gnarly ground. Yeah. Um, which I loved your description of, Ben, by the way. You said it was like the equivalent of running your, like, um, through a whole bunch of different servers to, like. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> this is my theory, right, is that I think she's, I think Granny's already onto this. She knows something's up. Someone's, someone's messing with her mind. She doesn't know how yet, but she can feel that it's happening because this is like her whole deal. And so she's headed up there so that she's out of reach. I think that's fairly clear. But yeah, it did feel to me like it was like hacking, you know, like when someone, and you see this in Hollywood hacking movies, like where someone's like, we can't trace them fast enough. They've bounced their IP through 16 different (laughs) servers. And they always explain it that much because they're like, the audience doesn't know anything about how (laughs) hacking works. We have to make this explicit. And, um, and I think that's what she's doing, you know, like it's too hard to reach her in there. Mm. So I think this is deliberate. You know, this is where I'm going with this is that I think she knows. Yeah. And, and I think this is all part of her plan. And I think we realize that once Nanny speaks to her alone in the cave. But I think she also genuinely didn't know that they had invited her or that they named the baby after her because, of course, her first name is also Esmeralda, which is lovely. It's just, a, it's just beautiful. It's a lovely mm. thing to do. I really like that. And I, I hope that young Esmeralda of Lanka turns up in the later Tiffany Aching books. I haven't read them, so I don't know, but I'm I'm hopeful. I want to know what she's like when she becomes a little girl and grows up and is cool. But yeah, so Granny's left. The party continues on with a bit of trepidation. There is a moment where the doors fling open before the naming happens, but it's just some new guests arriving. And the guests are the vampires because they've been invited by Verence, who's trying to be, you know, uh, modern and diplomatic. Diplomatic, yeah, yeah. Which I think is a bit. I don't know. How do you feel about this? Do you think? Do you think he's actually stupid enough to think it's fine to just invite vampires to your castle, or do you think he's under some kind of influence that they've somehow got him to invite them? Which kind of seems contrary to the whole "they have to be invited first rule. No, I think because in previous books, his whole thing is that he learns things from books. Like he'll send away for something on a subject. So he doesn't learn from experience. He learns from the literal letter of the law or ideas. So if a book says that it's important to be diplomatic and reach out to things, he will probably try that. So I think it's, it's that thing where... It's like when you wish for something from a genie and it sort of backfires always. It's because he hasn't got every thread happening when he does something. So yeah. I don't think they're influencing him. I think he tried to do a thing without thinking through every element 
or maybe he thought through every element that was available to him with the limited resources available. Mm. It is. It's a bit like that. Um, there's a, a quote in the book that I wrote down, which just says, "Books that were all about the world tended to be written by people who knew all about books rather than all about the world." Yeah, and I think <laughs> it is that. I think it's like, oh, we're having a royal naming day. Well, then, what? How do you do that? Okay, step one: invite foreign dignitaries. Great. Like mm. it just, and he is that kind of progressive that is. Um, <laughs> I don't want to be too political, but like the tolerant left where it's like, no, we should be inclusive and, you know, equality and democracy. And like, you know, I'm not going to discriminate against these people because of their dietary requirements. Like, absolutely. You are welcome. Sure. It's always yeah, yeah. that thing with variants of like everything being done in good faith and absolutely backfiring. Like Jeannie's always backfiring. you. Yeah. Yeah. He's too nice. He's too warm-hearted yeah i think which is also why he's so quickly taken under the influence as well mm. i do like that he was fighting it and that it was like clear that he was fighting it that so that sort of there is like an under layer of steel probably from all of his rough nights of being a professional fool yes yeah because he's the only one who you see fighting it like apart from the witches obviously although even nanny doesn't fight it at, at the first because she doesn't realize it's happening but he's he's got sweat running down his face and you can tell that he's like trying to fend it off but he's just not strong enough which i thought was a great detail that he included because it just yeah it shows that he is he is the king and he he's rightfully the king in as much as anyone can be rightfully a king i thought maybe it's because he's actually just naturally so good and because he's so warm-hearted and they're all talking about how you know, you got to kill someone here and there for the greater good. Like, it's overall, like, the big picture is important, but I feel like there's a part of him that can't tolerate that, even though his mouth is sort of going, yeah, that sounds reasonable. The part of him that's got absolute right and good in it is like, no, no, that's very bad. And that's the bit that's fighting. Mm. He doesn't have that shade of grey area that the vampires have that's like, oh, do we want to, like, sweep in and kill a bunch of people or do we want to, like, organise to kill people from time to time in exchange for stability and stuff and that is kind of like a parallel to some of the arguments about how to handle COVID at the moment. Mm. Sorry to bring it back to that, but it's kind of the two different viewpoints. It's like, is it cool to just sacrifice a few for the economy? Or oh, like, the Boris Johnson approach, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it, uh. So that, that brought that to mind for me. They're like, oh, well, um, if we're going to take a truly utilitarian view about it we'll, and, and prioritize the economy over individual lives, it's kind of like that. Mm. And Verant mm. couldn't be having with that. Yeah. It is also all the bad stuff about gentrification, which is like, we'll just come in and we'll just make a nice green space here and we'll make a nice cafe here. And actually, like, this isn't these commission houses, they're really bringing the tone down. So, and just pricing people out and slowly, you know, killing them slowly and with kind of progressive ideals. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Quote unquote progressive. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely yeah. Yeah. So I just thought I'd say that because the viewers couldn't see you do that. <laughs> um, I mean, viewers. Uh, but yes, uh, no one even realizes they're vampires at first, except for Agnes after she meets Vlad, who is the son. So we should talk about the vampires. They're obviously very important. So we have the Count de Magpire, spelt in the pretentious vampire way with a Y, uh, and his countess, uh, his wife, the countess, and their two children. Weird, vampires have children in, in the Discworld, it turns out. Vlad and Lacrimosa. Which, is this where we can talk about vampire boners now? Oh, yeah, Gillian, sorry. I should have, <laughs> I should have, I, I said Gillian because I feel like I need to be formal to prepare you because okay. in our last episode, 
Liz promised she was going to talk about vampire boners. Promise threatened. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a bit of both. Um, I don't know that this is the right time, or maybe it, it is. is. Vampires because... have kids. How do vampires have kids? They're dead. Their their bits don't work. That's like you can true. bite no. people and make them your children that way, but like, did they they're... have them before they became vampires? No, it's implied not because the count was a vampire and made the countess a vampire. But on the other hand, I mean, like there's so many different, this is, this is one of the fun things about this book is there's so many different weird vampire myths and stories, you know, and, and most of the ones mentioned in this book, even the really weird ones are either real or not very different from real ones. Like the vampire watermelons thing, that's a real myth. Is the, it? the tools that might bite you if you don't use them. That's a real myth. Yeah. And the, a lot of them are like obscure and like only people in like this one valley in this one place ever, you know, talked about that. But yeah. yeah, they're all, most of them are real and they're from the real world. But then, you know, the magpie family very much represents the modern idea of, of the vampire in some ways. Like the kind of vampires you see in something like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or the role-playing game Vampire the Masquerade where they can, you know, have this kind of pretend life uh, where they can sort of make themselves a bit more human for a short time um, and they're much more, you know, sort of thinking seriously about this uh, stuff. But, um, but I mean, if you want to talk about vampire boners, though, Vlad, does Vlad have one for Agnes? I'm just going to put it out there. Oh, he definitely yeah. has an emotional one, an emotional yeah. va- vampire boner for Agnes. Mm. How serious is he about it? That's what I want to know. You're trying to deflect me from talking about the actual vampire bonus, so we'll come back to that. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Look so I think I've thought about it for this book specifically, and maybe they're not actually dead in this book, because like vampires traditionally are a human who's been killed and brought back with like the soul of a demon, basically operating them, but keeps characteristics of the original person. But essentially it is a dead shell that is animated and thus does not have a circulatory system that can produce a boner. Or a baby, because you need to have like a live body to do that sure. so um but if we look at this book maybe they're not actually dead and that's not because like a lot of the traditional vampire tropes are rejected in this um especially when you see like the idea of people fighting off being bitten and having a choice about whether they become a vampire so like perhaps it is more of a state of mind thing well not mm. really like because there are all the tropes where they can't be properly killed they'll like be dead for a bit then they'll come back so maybe they're not the traditional vampire in terms of a dead human body, except they can be converted from humans. So it's confusing, right? But mm. in order to get a boner, you have to have a functioning circulatory system unless you're having, like, unless magic is causing the boners, which I guess is possible. But I mean, you know, you could say the same thing about everything in vampires. Like to walk around, they need a functioning muscular system. Like, but yes. they're dead, so it can't function, but they do. So. I feel like if you can imagine a dead body moving around and talking and biting people, surely pumping you can blood. You imagine it having a boner. That they're drinking. <laughs> yeah. It's not like they're lacking blood. Like they've got, in fact, they've got too much blood. I mean, in, in Vampire the Masquerade, the role-playing game that was very popular in the 90s and, and early 2000s, it's magical. Like when they drink the blood, it becomes magic in their bodies and it kind of just infuses through their whole system. All of their bodily fluids become blood. So like if they cry, it's like blood. And presumably if they do other things that I don't want to think about too much because we're already talking about vampire boners. Hot that yoga. That is also blood. Mm-hmm. Hot yeah. yoga. Yeah, exactly. Hot <laughs> yoga. The vampires uh, were early adopters of Bikram. <laughs> also oh, a bad no. person. So it checks out. Oh, true. True. <laughs> 
uh, oh yeah, uh, who had weird uh, mental influence over his yeah. followers. Um, but yeah, the uh, it's I don't know. Um, it's weird, but- like because like if they eat blood, does that go through the digestive system, but then come through his blood? Like why why bother going through all the tubes? To begin with, because the whole point of that is to extract all the stuff. Like, it's weird to me that urine starts out as blood. Like, it's just liquid taken from blood just to get more sort of... But yeah, so like, if they're eating blood, but then it's not food and it doesn't turn into anything else. Like, it just... They may as well just be like a a hollow flesh sack full of blood. (laughs) Um, An IV bag, essentially, with a face. Yeah. (laughs) And arms That's and legs. Kept in place and by a waistcoat. <laughs> yeah, like a balloon man oh, of blood. Like a sky dancer. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, but this is the fun of fantasy, right? Is that you take, and, and this is the fun of Pratchett's approach, is that sometimes he doesn't really do this too much with the vampires, just little bits here and there. But he takes a sort of a science fiction y kind of approach to fantasy where he does kind of make things run on a kind of logic. Mm. He doesn't like try and break it down and make it make perfect sense, but he just sort of has a way in which it kind of works. And and in this book, because he's rejecting those vampire tropes, yeah, we don't have to make, like, we can have kids if we want to. And then he's got the point later on where he says, but vampires don't often do it because, like, as one of them says, you know, we, we're not raising successes, we're raising competitors because we live for ages. So, yeah. I, 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 I kind of just want to know if we're done with vampire bonus. <laughs> yeah. As one final thing, not about bonus in general, it's about vampires. I think the thing that bothers me is that they're so close to human that human rules almost apply whereas with most other things i can suspend my disbelief and go mm. okay like there's magic or something like with frankenstein's monster i can go with that um i can go with pretty much like werewolves as well but because vampires are basically like a weird form of human and people want them to do kind of human things that's for me where i stumble because those two things don't quite overlap you have to break rules without explaining them that you know, I, I'm mm. not expressing myself well, but it's just it's too close, and that's why I can't suspend my disbelief on vampires. Okay, I mean, if you want significantly more in depth detail about specifically vampire bonus, specifically Twilight mm. is the place to get that. <laughs> oh no! Just knowing I mean, I, that the boner I, is very cold and very hard <laughs> is just no. Well, I've read the Southern Vampire avoid. Chronicles, like which is what the True Blood books are based on, and they talk about them being cold there too. Yeah, just um, like mounting a steel post, like it's just oh god, it sounds deeply unpleasant mm, and painful. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's not that doesn't sound great at all. It no, sounds like the opposite of great. <laughs> we can't wait wait to read Midnight Sun and read about them from Edward's perspective. Wait, what is this? I don't know what this is. Oh, there's a new Twilight book where it's written from um, Edward's perspective. It's, oh, I think it's wow. out now. Well, there you go. It's just free money, basically. Oh, oh no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this brings me, though, to the point of Vlad having a boner for Agnes. Mm. Yes. Because Thank she's you. impenetrable. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> God, no. We veered Definitely. away and then we veered straight back into straight the Straight back into it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It oh, just, no. but it uh, is, it is this whole thing of like vampires and young women with open windows and billowing curtains. That's always what it is. This Victorian era of like a monster penetrating an innocent. Hmm. Oh, yeah. That's, you yeah. know, that's absolutely what it is. And so with Vlad and Agnes, I don't know that it's, that he has a genuine interest 
in her. It's just the game. It's the fact that she's not like everyone else. But it does, does also like sometimes time with that kind of manic pixie dream girl thing to where it's like, you're not like other girls. Other girls are stupid, but you're like, you're a girl I can get behind. Like it's just very yeah. strange and- to see that play out in this kind of narrative. And like Ramosa has that line later about, oh, we have to find room for her, like with the others. And it seems like he's kind of like, this is his thing that he does. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that was the clincher for me. Like, I, I was very much like, you're not really, like, you don't see this person. Like, I, I can't remember. I think it might have been Clementine Ford or someone was saying on Instagram, when you talk to a lot of men who are terrible in relationships, you ask them about their partner, they can't tell you anything about her. They just know what she does for them. Mm. That's exactly what he's like. He doesn't care. He doesn't care what Agnes is like, except that, oh, it's going to be difficult for me to get her, so I've got to get her. And she's interesting because I don't know how to get her. And you're like, that's gross, man. Yeah. And then, yeah, he's he's like that, absolutely, with these He's literally a predator. Yes. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But he presents so nicely, which I think is, you know, unfortunately very accurate to, to true life, you know? Like, I know, in my past, I had to learn not to be a misogynist dickbag because that is how we're all raised as men, right? And you have maybe to unlearn it. Maybe that's how they get vampire binders. Sorry, I took that. You were saying something serious. And I was like, maybe, maybe they have a misogynist dickbag. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, but, yeah, you have to unlearn it, you know. And it, and everyone, every every man learns that. It doesn't matter how nice they are or how well brought up they are. We all learn those things and we all have to go through the process of unlearning it. Nowadays, hopefully, some men don't learn it because we talk about it more and we try to pass on the countering messages at an earlier age. But, yeah, it's real. He's 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 oh, I hated him so much. Um, <laughs> and he's supposed to be the nice one, though. I mean, but I do kind of love the Count as much as he is an arch bastard. He's just one of those real suave villains. Do you think he was supposed to be the nice one? Because from get-go, for me, he was a villain. Like, for not one second did I think he was the nice one. Vlad, you mean? Yeah. The Count, I thought, had more of a chance of being the nice one if there had to be one out of that family. The Countess was a bit nothing. Like, she didn't really get any sort of character beyond being the wife and mother Mm. and formerly human, so I didn't get any sense of her. But the Count seems like he was described as kind of like a Lord Grantham kind of character, like a, a lord who sits in his library and learns about things and wants to tell you about the exciting new book he's just read like he's drunk with his own kool-aid but he does seem to genuinely come from a place of something whereas vlad is kind of like a traditional vampire with the new modern smarts that are backing up his his animal instincts yeah it's interesting because i think within the family unit the count actually occupies someone who's like i understand our history i understand where we've come from and this is where we can go in the future and then you get this beautiful sidebar storyline of Lacrimosa and her friends who call themselves Wendy and Pam. <laughs> yeah. It's like the goth <laughs> version of vampires is super preppy, which I love. So good. And that kind of has nice parallels too to stuff that you get in some of the earlier witches books about Agnes calling herself Pedita and somebody calls themselves like Diamanda or there's like another weird name that I remember. Yeah. So it is this like weird, like whatever you uh, are raised with, you want to be the opposite. You always want to reject the ideals of your parents, even if you don't know how you were physically conceived by them. Um, it's, um, <laughs> it's such a nice storyline that Lacrimosa is this kind of sullen, you know, and that the Count has done so much work to be like, we reject our narrative, we emerge stronger to the point where there are questions that I had never thought about where I think he's like, 
onions don't hurt us. And then he's like, am I afraid of a shallot? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. oh, yeah, like garlic. onion. What I'd always pictured it to be brown onions and garlic, but could it be red onions? Could it be spring onions? <laughs> could it be? <laughs> There's so much variety in the, I think it's the Allium family. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. nuts. And then that beautiful moment towards the end too, where once Granny is starting to get to them, where they realize that it, actually what the Count has done for the kids is make them so much more aware of every single threat that they're more susceptible just by quantity, by yeah. knowing, you know, these obscure religious symbols that they might not have previously <laughs> even known. It's kind of unbelievable. I love that. That was yeah. so great. Yeah. So good. And it's a different theory too, because like there are. I was reading up about this. There's there's lots of different ideas about how vampires would work and why those things work on them. And one of the big traditional ones, and this is apparently it's the official position of the Catholic Church, is that the thing that makes vampires recoil from a cross is the faith of the person holding the cross. And that is an idea that you've seen in like vampire films where um, you know like someone holds up a Star of David, or there's a Doctor Who story where there's vampires, where there's a Russian soldier who holds up his pin representing the revolution, and then the Doctor himself, when the vampires are coming for him, is standing there. It's actually a really nice moment where he's just reciting the names of a bunch of his past companions in whom he has absolute faith, and the vampires, you know, they have to fuck off. So that's one theory, and then there's another theory that. No, God is doing it. So it doesn't matter if you believe or not. Presenting the icon is presenting the power of God to the vampire and they can't resist. And then this book is about, you know, the third one, which is the vampires believe it's going to hurt them because they believe they're damned. And so that's why it works. And that's what the count is trying to counter. But I think by the end of the book, it's, it's really not clear which one of those things is true. Like, it seems like it must be in their minds because they're able to overcome it. But then again, is that just because the Count believes so fervently that he has the faith that they can overcome it? And then as soon as that's weakened, it all crumbles and stops, Um, which I guess is a version of the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's Mm. interesting, too, the way that I think stories around faith become distorted and what is allegorical gets taken as being literal is like that beautiful moment where Mightily Oats and Granny, uh, the donkeys run off and she's lost her boots and she's freezing and he turns to the Book of Om, yeah. which would mean that he literally uses it for kindling. Oh, such a beautiful moment. Which is such a beautiful moment. But I was like, oh, in the, you know, in the hundred years to come version of Mightily Oats is this young guy telling this story about, you know, lost in the wilderness with this sick old woman, but the Book of Om saved them. <laughs> you never think about the practicality of that being like, you get told that it's that it is faith, but actually it might be a practical application of faith that is, you know, um, a more pragmatic kind of approach to um, solving a problem. Yeah. Like staking someone with a cross. Yeah. Yeah, stakes a stake, whatever's handy. <laughs> yeah. And that becomes such a big part of his journey too by the end when he's confronting the vampires in the final showdown, which is, yeah, so great. Once Agnes and Nanny realise that there's vampires – they try to do something, but they realize everyone's already been mesmerized by them and, you know, there's not much they can do uh, except fight them directly. And that's how they realize that the Count has conditioned himself and his family to resist all these traditional banes of vampires. The way Pratchett presents it, it's like the standard Discworld vampire is very much your sort of hammer horror, Bella Lugosi, wears evening dress all the time. The thing that the Count from Sesame Street is parodying and not a modern vampire at all. 
So the Count and his family are really a surprise and there's just really, there's not much they can do against them. They have to leave the party before Nanny can be brought out of their influence. She's already under it. And then they go back, they try and fight them. They realize it's not going to work. Um, and they... and you have to mention that their driving force behind that is Perdita because she is the one that isn't under the spell. Like Agnes kind of gets put underneath it. But the thing that saves her from that is that she's got this second person who's like, what's going on? Why are you drinking from this kool-aid basically and mm. so yeah i like the way they describe that as being like a seesaw they'd get a bit of a grip on agnes and then perdita would rise up and go hey leave me alone and then they'd get a bit of a grip on her and agnes would come back because they could only take over one mind or influence one mind at a time i thought that was that was a fun way to describe that although weird because it really sets in place this concrete idea of perdita as this other identity or other personality and it is a bit of a I, th- I think it's fun. I think I think Pratchett does a good job of sort of treading the line where it is a fun concept and it doesn't quite stray into maybe a gross caricature of what real mental illness is like because we're not expected to think about this as a mental illness. We're just expected to think about it as... And they explicitly say in the book, you know, everyone has this kind of inner voice. It's just that Agnes is a witch and has given her as a name, so of course it's become a real personality, which I thought was a nice way of kind of handling that. Yeah, Absolutely. I remember a few years ago seeing Laura Davis, the comedian, talk about giving a name to her horrible voice. Oh, yeah. And I, yeah. it was only when I reread this book, and that's a concept I've come across a lot in, you know, therapy and things like that, where I have friends who are like, yeah, I just call her, I can't remember, I can't remember if this is Laura's or someone else I know, where they're like, it's just Brenda, she's just <laughs> very lippy today, <laughs> and I just, you know, just whatever that inner voice is, is that. For some people, naming it is actually a really helpful quality where it's just like, not today, not now, not your job. I like the idea of giving it a specific name, like Petita or Brenda, or, you know, yeah. I guess mine would be called like Kevin or something. Oh, that's mean to Kevin's. Sorry, Kevin's. We need to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Um, but, uh, but like naming it is, is very useful. Like, I mean, one of the concepts I've come across is the idea of shame gremlins or shame goblins, because mm. shame is not a very useful emotion. Like regret is useful and guilt can be useful in the right circumstances. But shame is just like, I'm a terrible person rather than I did a terrible thing and I need to learn from it and not do it anymore. Yeah. It's a really good concept. I'd forgotten about that. So I'm glad you brought that up because that kind of nails that really well. Mm. Yeah. That's how I've always kind of thought of Padita is just that voice being like, You've worn the wrong outfit. You should have been late. Why were you early to the party? Why didn't you bring anything? Why did you bring something? That was stupid. (laughs) Just just never, never give you a break ever. (laughs) Yeah, I could identify with that for sure. Yeah, which is the nice thing about her is that she's kind of, and in this book particularly, she gets to be the one that's like into Vlad pushing that side of Agnes. That's really interesting, the way that you see all that play out. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Pedita is really not a very nice person, though. I do not want to hang out with her. And I don't think she can sing. I don't know why I have this impression. Like, Agnes, obviously. Oh, no, that gets mentioned in the book. Oh, it it does? It says Perdita would some, yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's in Masquerade, but it's literally like Agnes can sing in harmony with herself. Perdita would sometimes join in, but she had quite a reedy voice. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, good. Which I love. There you go. That's where that comes from. Yeah. Uh, but look, this is it. There's some back and forth. Nanny and Agnes are like, we've got to do something about this, but they just can't get through. Like none of their anti-vampire stuff that they know. And this is where they sort of start that running joke about everybody knows this about vampires, right? <laughs> Which builds up throughout the whole book. Sock thing was my favorite thing ever. It's like if you take one of their socks, they'll leave you alone because they have to find it for the next hundred years. 
Yeah. I don't know if that one's real. I was saying before that so many of them are real, but I, I don't know if the sock one is. There's definitely ones like that. Like there's the one where like if you scatter rice in front of a vampire, they have to stop and count all the grains of rice, giving you time to escape. But the sock one, I think it was, I think he might have made that one up, and I do like that it came up at different points in the books. Like they all did, but yeah. about how they count, like he'd finally gotten past his thing. He's like, you can buy more socks. It's okay. <laughs> you can always get more of them. Yeah. But he's still annoyed because it was like, they were silk. They cost $100 for a more pork. <laughs> um, yeah. But basically they've given Verence the fluence and he has agreed that... For influence. Yeah. Mm. Um, they will rule Lanka. It will become a duchy of the Countess's own lands back in Uberwald. And there's nothing really they can do. Although there's a great moment where Perdita like knees Vlad right in the... Right, and where he would the produce vampire a boner. vampire boner, mm. yes. And glass boys, yeah. <laughs> it's lost boys. Oh, no. Yeah, and that all goes on, and they're just like, well, we can't fix this by ourselves. Whatever Granny's up to, we need her. Let's go get her. Like, this is all mental stuff. That's that's her domain, says Nanny. Meanwhile, though, I don't want to leave out Hodges. How do we all want to say it? We should all have a go. What's How do you pronounce his name? Hodges yeah, It's pretty good. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like you've got to go up, like, because it's clearly like. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah. I love that. I uh, can't improve on that at all. I think that. <laughs> yes, yeah, perfection. So I probably don't need to. <laughs> but he's, he's, uh, you know, the Castle Faulkner introduced in, I think introduced in Lords and Ladies, maybe mentioned in a previous book, but. He's noticed that maybe there's a phoenix, and he slowly sort of puts that together from weird stuff that he's seen. But then he's like, "Well, there is a phoenix. fire again for our essay." Yeah. <laughs> yes, he attends. Mm, you uh, use the word juxtaposition three times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I've only misspelled it once. Uh, the <laughs> leap motif does not have a one three three seven in it. <laughs> oh God, uh, that's got to be somebody's like derby name, though. Surely. But yeah, he's going out to try and find the phoenix. I love the way he applies his knowledge of being a, a bird watcher and a professional Faulkner. And there's several times in the book where it says if only he just thought a little bit further, he would have figured it out straight away. But he can't find the phoenix anywhere. I thought that meant he was going to die. When they, oh, no. Yeah, I was like, oh, if he thought a bit further, I was like, oh, he doesn't get to think through the next level. No, it's because he didn't think through the thing. Yeah. But yeah, the witches head off to find Granny. Not only is she gone, the whole place has been cleaned up. Stuff in threes has been laid out. The clock has stopped at three. Um, she's even smashed a cup to make there be only three cups left in the set. And the only thing she's taken with her is this small box, which contains her personal belongings, because a cottage doesn't belong to a witch. It belongs to the position of being the witch. So once you stop being the witch, you give it up, and the next witch takes it over. Um, and they see a bunch of magpies, and... Nanny's like, this is not okay. Oh, no. She thinks that she wasn't invited and she's not needed anymore and she's left, which means the positions in the coven have shifted around and Margaret's now the mother, obviously. You're clearly the maiden, which means I have to be the other one. <laughs> she just complains about, I'm not the right shape. I don't know how to do it. Like My bras won't fit. Um, but then she does. Yeah. But then she really takes it on and just has a go and she's pretty good. It's like I said, I love this whole first part of the book where it's it's the Nanny Og and Agnes show. Mm. It's great. But it's also wild because it's like, again, tapping into the whole power of belief thing. Like, she doesn't have to change how she is. She can just keep on keeping on being herself. But there's tradition, there's belief. And it becomes like, 
is she becoming like this because she has to? Like, there's a force that does it. Like, is she choosing to, or is she being forced to? Because that's just how things are, and that's again the sort of the beliefs being like the vampires not believing in the things that kill them. Like, which is like what is actually happening there. So I feel like that's another parallel. Also, like Maiden Mother and Crone. This is something I was thinking about. I was like, well, why should this be the case for women and not? For men, but I suppose mm. it's because there is an actual like anatomical change between each of those three stages as well. Like, you know, something is <laughs> broken, <laughs> and then yeah, yeah. you know, then you're talking about, I guess, kind of becoming a mother and everything that entails physically. And then to me, it's like menopause is kind of the thing. Like, mm. you have these actual physical changes as women that are much more um, delineated than, you know, for a man becoming a father. Nothing physically changes in your body other than you know mm. back pain from carrying a baby but that's life now i guess <laughs> yeah dad bod's um, not a thing really. dad bods just... yeah the dad bod otherwise known as the male change yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> oh no yeah it's such a staple of mythology like going all the way back to the fates you know i'm gonna get their names wrong but clotho and lachesis and you know the greek ones and the norns in norse mythology but with dudes, like particularly wizards, they're quite solo. A lot of modern wizard ideas in fiction is based on Lord of the Rings. And there are five wizards in Lord of the Rings, although two of them sort of vanished. So there are kind of three left, but they don't work together. It just, it just happens that there's three of them. They're doing their own thing. I can't think of any male equivalent in mythology. A couple of years ago, I wrote an opera with Casey Bonetto and Julian Langdon, which is still the funnest sentence I ever get to say out loud. And, <laughs> um, and it was called Lorelei and it's three women and it's about. I've seen it. Sorry. I just oh, yelled that. You have lovely. really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. We did mention it when we were talking about Masquerade, actually. Oh, that's so yeah. cool. But. And I interviewed the director. Oh, you did? Sarah Giles? Yeah. Yeah. So well, this is what I was going to talk so about. No, I love this yelling. I'm always in support of, of excited yelling. Um, so I was waiting for it to come for another season because I had like three sessions and I saw, and wanted to recommend it to everyone, well, but I saw the last one. waiting. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Um, Me too. But, but you explain it because it's great. So. Well, because it's a three-hander for three women and we wanted to very much write about them as their own separate entities, but a problem that we continually kept running into was being like, oh, but if she's the this one, then she's the this one. And because they're um, Lorelei, they're sirens, they're immortal, they're kind of, you know, of the fantastical realm, we talked a little bit in the beginning about it having like a waiting for Godot kind of a vibe, that they're like stuck on this rock for just millennia. and we would keep trying to write that and then we'd be like, no, it doesn't quite work. And Sarah Giles, the director who I am obsessed with, who is heaven, made this great point to me that I have not stopped thinking about since, which is that men on stage or in literature represent um, humanity, women on stage represent their gender. And so one thing that I hadn't thought about until I was reading this book again, which has this kind of, you know, they talk a lot about the three, is that I never felt like that with the witches when I was reading Terry Pratchett because – they support each other. They don't exist in competition. Like mm. there's something really beautiful about that, that Granny Weatherwax is so relentlessly high status that you can't, there's no getting around her being that way. Yeah. And then Nanny Og, everything just sort of bounces off her because you can't embarrass her in any way, shape or form or make her feel bad. Mm. And that then both Magra and later Agnes fill this kind of younger role of, you know, doubting yourself. And so there is a beautiful transition in this book about Magra becoming a mother 
where Agnes talks about it, how she starts to make sort of nanny ogish jokes because she can now. Mm. That's really beautiful that she's like, she's still Margaret, but she's not sort of wet anymore. Like she's not this like, you know, flimsy little thing. I really love that. She's damp, wasn't it? The line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's the one time you ever see nanny like shocked in any of the books is when Margaret tells a filthy joke. Yeah. You're like, whoa. You, you're doing this. And then there's that later bit where they basically talk about vampire boners and um, except non-vampire boners, really. King boners. And it's just, oh, it's delightful. I love that. Uh, and, yeah, I think, you know, each of the witches has so much going on because, like, in this book, when Nanny starts to step into that role of the other one, she's not that different. And there's some things that she does in this book that you could argue are from that influence. But also if she'd done them in another book, you wouldn't have been that surprised. Like when Igor's wasting time mourning over his dead dog, which is sad, obviously. And I hope that there's a book version of does the dog die.com so that you can find out if that's going to happen in a book that you're reading. Oh, but it'd have such a complicated answer. It, w- it would in this book. Yeah. <laughs> um, it reminded me of Frankenweenie by the end, the old Tim Burton movie that got remade into a new Tim Burton movie. But the, um, the, yeah, there's, she, when he's wasting time mourning over his dog and she just like, her arm just shoots out and grips him like a vice and it's just like, there's a baby in danger. Shut up. We don't have time for this. Your dog's already dead. We've got to concentrate on the living. And you're like, I would buy that from Nanny Og in any book, but I would also buy it from Granny Weatherwax. So I think they, they do have these cool crossovers where they don't just fit neatly into their boxes. Each one is a complex and interesting character. Mm. And I think that's why they're so great and so beloved. And Nanny has that great thing about, again, state of mind, that she was never in her head a maiden, even when she was, like, yeah. from their definitions of it. So that I think that taps nicely into that. Yeah, <laughs> which there's that great bit in that when she's talking about someone who, if you told her a dirty joke, if you were quick enough, you could cook breakfast for six <laughs> on her head, which just reminded me of one of my favourite phrases of all time. Oh, she'd cry if you told her she had a wooden leg. One of those people who will cry about anything. <laughs> so That's me. Them, yeah. Oh, yeah, I have a few friends like this. Um, and I, I kind of love that as a phrase. That's wonderful. But look, they obviously can't find Granny. She's not in her cottage. Nanny tries to find her using magic, but she can't find where Granny is. Wherever she is, she's hiding beyond the realms of, of magic. In fact, she's gone up to Gnarly Ground, which is a bit of Lanka where all the geography has become scrunched up because there's not enough physical room for it. It's a bit magically weird. And they do describe it at one point specifically as being bigger on the inside. So it's very clear Doctor Who reference there. I, mm-hmm. I don't think you have to drink for that one, listeners. They're like, well, we can't find her on our own. We're going to need three witches to do magic powerful enough to find her. Oats turns up at the cottage at that time because someone had said Granny wasn't here. Maybe she's not okay. And he just was like going to see how she was, which is something none of the locals would do for fear of being instantly killed by the <laughs> stare that they would get. Um, but. He and Agnes go back to the castle and get Margaret so that there's three of them. Although there's that great bit where she brings like the baby and all of the baby stuff. And I feel like this was clearly written by someone who was a parent. Like I don't have any kids, but I have so many friends who do that I feel like there are elements of that experience that I have kind of absorbed through osmosis. Mm-hmm. And yeah, having to carry the big bag of stuff everywhere you go seems like just such a universal experience. Oh, several bags. Several bags, yeah. Well, I mean, so there's a bag know. for diapers and a bag for dirty ones, and then there's a whole farm set, and you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. as Margaret enumerates. Mm-hmm. Um, but they managed to bring her back, and she brings the baby with her. And I kind of love that she's just 
never questions this. It's like, you know, I'll just bring a baby everywhere. Yeah. Well, she says, I think it's possible to combine motherhood and a career, which is great. Hashtag busy working mom. Yeah. I mean, look, also, she is a queen and does have a nanny. In fact, two, if we count Nanny Og. So, you know, she's doing okay. She's got a few advantages on that score, <laughs> shall we say. But yeah, uh, the Count can't find Granny either. He's trying. He's using his magpies to spy all over the place. But eventually, the witches do scry where Granny is, and they go in person to go and find her. They can't fly through the gnarly ground. They have to walk the last bit of the way. And they have this great, weird sort of adventure where... They're seeing this vast landscape, which is on the inside of the gnarly ground, but at the same time, it's really just a small patch of earth. Mm. Uh, and Perdita can see the sort of version that exists outside of the little sort of scrunched up bit of reality. And there's this great bit where Agnes does the real Lara Croft bit where she's like hanging off the bridge and she pulls herself up and does a handstand on the edge. And they're like, did you just do a handstand on the edge? And it's <laughs> such a clear Tomb Raider <laughs> reference. And the thing I love about that is that apparently Terry Pratchett was a big Tomb Raider fan. He loved video games. And Rihanna Pratchett, his daughter, who's now well-known as a video game writer, wrote the reboot versions of the first two Tomb Raider games, which are really good. And I thought, oh, that's a nice kind of lineage. I had no idea of that connection before rereading this book. Uh, And eventually they do find Granny hiding in a cave. And she doesn't have her I Ain't Dead sign on. She has a sign that just says, Go away. <laughs> That's great. That's a 2020 mood. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but she's not having any of it. Like, they, they do wake her up and she's like, nah, there's three of you. You take care of it. And this is the scene where they tell her her invitation got stolen by magpies and that they named the baby Esmeralda. And she clearly, genuinely did not know either of those things which is such a rare instance where Granny's, like, caught out and feels anything about it. Mm. But it, uh, but in the circumstances, there's not really that much time or space in the story to make much of it. But it is still such a big moment. I kind of loved it. But there's the conversation that she has with all of them there, and then there's the conversation she has when Nanny pips Margaret at the post to be the one who finds an excuse to go back and talk to her one-on-one. <laughs> I love that that they have that little competition where she admits that she just doesn't know if she can beat the Count because he's such a powerful vampire. He's had hundreds of years to learn how to influence people's minds and she just doesn't know if she's got the power to take him on, which is a big admission from Granny Weatherwax. It's a pretty full-on bit of the book, but I really love that conversation where she's just straight up, I don't know if I can beat this guy. You guys have to have a go and I should stay here. I can't remember if she says this in as many words, but I kind of feel there's an undercurrent of if he gets power over me and I turn to the darkness, you're all fucked. Yeah, so absolutely. So <laughs> I'm just staying here in this cave. And you're like, okay, that seems fair. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, the others leave. And I'm like, okay, we got to, we're not giving up though. We've got to do something about this. But it's just, I love this whole bit in the cave. Yeah, it is really wonderful to see all four of them just together without anyone else, without anything else going on to kind of, you know, the new coven kind of emerges, which I love. Do we ever find out what the rhyme for, like, when it's, they had the whole, like, one, two, three, or mean different things? Like, what was four? The version I know is from Megan Washington's song, which is one for sorrow, two for joy, three for a girl, four for a boy, mm. five for the young, six for the old, seven for a story that never gets told. I oh, think. that's mm. another different one. I don't think that one's in the book. Yeah, there's so many. There's a song version by um, a folk group from the UK called The Unthanks. 
and they use a version that's basically the same as the one that Agnes uses in this book. So it's one for sorrow, two for joy, three for a girl, four for a boy, five for silver, six for gold, seven for a secret never told. And and that's basically exactly the same as the Agnes one. And I think that is one of the more well-known ones. But the one that Nanny says is more like one that's documented in a book of Scottish folklore, although even that's not quite the same. So where they say in the book that there are all these different rhymes for what magpies mean, but none of them are reliable because they're not the one that the magpies know, <laughs> uh, which I thought was such a good line. I think I think that's true. Like There's heaps of them. Hmm. Um, but they head back and they try to come up with a plan. One of Nanny's first plans is, well, this guy Vlad, he's into you. Just marry him and then put a stake <laughs> in him while you're in bed. <laughs> And uh, and there's that inner voice conversation that she has where she says out loud, I'd rather kill myself. And Perdita says, in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, no. I love it. Oh, uh, yeah. Which I guess means he must be, like, I, I know there are physical descriptions of the vampires, but they're not super detailed because we know what a vampire is supposed to look like. But he's clearly, he's clearly a babe. Well, they say that he's really attractive when he's first introduced. Like, she's very interested. Is he one of those, like, poetic types that you picture, like, Mary Shelley? Like, yeah. kind of that kind of, yeah. Because um, then the opposite of that is, like, um, like Moses' friends is the one who grows his hair short and dresses like an accountant. So, like, the opposite of that is what a vampire <laughs> looks like. <laughs> I just love the phrase, grows his hair short as well. It's so good. Yeah, it's genius. Oh, yeah. Um, Is this when Nanny Og assembles the mob? It is. Oh, my favorite. Yeah. I love this. Oh, uh, yeah. And it's like, oh, to be a spontaneous mob. Although just before that, this is where they finally meet the Nakmak Fiegel. And because they, they, they've been watching in the cottage and Agnes has spotted one earlier, but not really know what it is. And now they're in Nanny's house and they spot one and she catches one and she can understand their language. And I love that in Witches Abroad, the fact that Nanny could speak other languages was kind of a joke. It was like, she doesn't really speak other languages. She kind of just vaguely understands what people are saying and pretends that she can actually speak other languages. But in this one, she really can speak Fiegel and understands what they're saying and translates for everyone else. And it's this is where we find out the Fiegels and the centaurs that have shown up at a couple of times in the book and the phoenix, they've all been ejected from Uberwald in the lands of Count Magpie because he's like, we don't need any of that nonsense. We've got a new order now. It's just vampires and people. That's all we need. Everything else is superfluous and ridiculous. And they've been pushed out of their home and they're pretty pissed off about it. Like a certain Lord Farquaad forcing all the magical creatures out of his oh, kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. They make they kind of make a deal with the Necromach Fiegel, which is like, okay, we're gonna give you this island to live on. Uh and Nanny just sort of does this without anybody's permission, which is a very granny weatherwax way to do it. And I think mm-hmm. this is clearly the influence of the role of the crone starting to take over. But she, yeah, she just does it and then says, well, you're the queen to Margaret. You make it official. And then organizes the mob. Can we, let's talk about the mob and the Ogs. I love it because I'm from a giant family. And oh, yeah. Just <laughs> the idea that you could just muster like a group enough people is just, I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> Absolutely. That's like, cool. The, you know, like my gap year of touring, like traveling overseas after school was just like, yeah, there's a cousin here. You could like I planned where I was gonna stay based on where various <laughs> cousins and oh. their former housemates lived. Just That's amazing. Free couches. So is the system of photographs true for big for all big families? Like 
nanny's system where like you get demoted because of your spot like where your photo is no that would require us all to ever be in one place which is too difficult (laughs) but that is a wonderful point yeah i do love that i think my nana had something like that i think there was an array of photos that's great Mm. yeah that's very cool and it's just nice to see the other ogs whenever they turn up you know Mm. uh jason i particularly like jason the big blacksmith and there's a great description of him in this book where he's like he was so big and strong that you know as typical of men who are actually big and strong he never wanted to ever do violence (laughs) and you're like yeah i've known guys like that you know who were bouncers and it's like i'm a bouncer because i want to stop other people getting in trouble and he knits really intense socks because he's so strong oh yeah the lanka wall socks can stand on their own (laughs) Uh, i thought that was cool and they, but the, the assembled mob basically are a distraction. Like they show up at the front gates, allowing Agnes to just walk in because she's impervious and kind of gets caught up in like learning the sort of magpie family history. And there's that great bit where Vlad's showing her the family paintings and it's like a history of vampires in cinema, <laughs> 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 which, was, which was hilarious. That was great. And then she lets them into the castle when they all go to talk about the mob and they decide they're going to confront them. It doesn't really work because, you know, the Count is a super powerful hundreds of years old vampire and he just controls the weather and there's like lightning and windstorms. And just as everything seems like it's all over, um, Granny enters. But even that the Count has predicted that this is the moment where she's going to make a grand entrance. And she looks really weak when she shows up because she's still trying to fight off his mental influence. And she's able to do it, but she's kind of doing it through this force of Granny Weatherwax will, which is sapping her uh, strength. And she even manages to like give him like a mental slap in the face a couple of times. But he's like, well, that's quite good, but it's not good enough. Mm. And grabs her. And instead of killing her, all the vampires drink her blood. And Nanny and Magret are like, well, this is fucked. <laughs> Let's get out of here. Agnes, you hold him off. We've got to escape. <laughs> Which Agnes is sort of like, well, that makes sense. Because there's that great line where she goes, well, there's now there's instead of three witches in danger, there's just one witch in danger. But also, that's not okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But there's also that bit during the confrontation where Granny says, it doesn't matter what you do to me because you know what I can do. I'll send my mind somewhere else and then you won't know what I'm doing and I'll come back and I'll do something else and you can't predict it. And they're like, whatever. We'll make That's what we'll make you into a vampire and then, you know, you'll just be subservient to us. Because they also establish that the way that it works for these vampires is if they drink enough of your blood to make you a vampire but you don't allow them to, then you become a subservient kind of the Dungeons and Dragons term is vampire spawn. So you like, you're kind of like a junior crappy vampire who's mm. like a minion of the big ones. But if you embrace it, then you become a proper vampire. You wouldn't want this information to get out though. Cause then if you're getting murdered by a vampire, you'd kind of be like, okay, I'm going to decide that I'm into this so that yes. I'm not like one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, actually, like you're like, going through your pros list of why, why it'd be good to be a vampire as like you're being killed. Cause then you can be like, yeah, like the near, not a shit vampire. You're like a good one. <laughs> I love a good supernatural loophole. That's yeah. that's genius. But when they do drink her blood, like they're like, oh, she's put her mind somewhere. She's put her mind somewhere. And Nanny and Margaret think they know where it is and they run off trying not to think about where they think it is. And I kind of love that little subplot of uh, what they think is going on is not what's actually going on, like you were saying earlier, Jill. It's really cool. It's not great for Granny. They all drink her blood. This is something alluded to in some of Oates's vampire notes from his uh, university days that he's already looked at, where they talk about Nerd. all the vampires. Uh, yeah, all the vampires drink someone's blood so that they'll be susceptible to all of their influence. 
And again, it's just like a sort of a remix of all these traditional vampire myths, which I, I love. But they just throw her body outside the castle and Agnes is out there. And she and Oates are like, fuck, what are we going to do with it? We'll, we'll hide her away, which they do. Before we come back to that plot line, this is the point in the book where Verence is saved by the Nack McFeagall and carried off down the Rushy Glen, as is quoted at one point, like from the poem, and hide him in their little barrow and he meets the, like, queen of the Nack McFeagalls yeah, and they Aggie. look after him. And I just, yeah. I love that whole bit. It was so like Kelsa. good. Kelda? Kelda. Kelda, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, again, has real Nanny Og vibes. Yeah, very much. With her big family and all of this. Like, it's just, yeah, it's extremely Nanny Og vibes. Yeah. <laughs> it's also, this is where, for me, it really kicks up a notch into action movie vibes because you have this mm. ABCD plot where you have Nanny Og and Magrat in the carriage going to Uberworld because they have to because of the storm and you have Verence in the burrow with the Nackmack Fiegel and you have Agnes dealing with Vlad and flying and all that kind of stuff. And then you have Granny Weatherwax having this existential dark and light, which side will you choose experience with Mightily Oates and Hodgesar coming in. It like, it it just, everything is happening at once in a way that's just so like exciting to keep reading all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And he cuts back and forth from the scenes and he just really manages it well, you know? Yeah. Like the Verence one is strung out over, and I I wrote this down because I was fascinated by this. That happens in six different segments. And really when you think about what happens... He gets carried into the barrow. They've rid him of the vampire's influence and then they feed him some stuff to make him go berserk, basically, so he can fight back and be a proper king. And that all happens over six little vignettes in between all the other stuff that's happening. And it's oh, it's so good. I love it. Yeah, I had never thought until you pointed out before that there aren't chapters because also I read it on my Kindle and I was like, oh, no, maybe I've got like a weird Kindle version that's, you know, how formatting can be weird. Mm. Cause yeah. I'm, and it took me a bit to get my head back around it where I was like, Oh no, oh no, now we're here. I must have missed a page. But the advantage of that is if you don't break it up, then you're, you as the reader don't break it up. You don't naturally stop at any point. You just keep rolling, which is so exciting. Yeah. Mm. yeah. It's one of those things that makes it feel like a, like a film. Mm. Yeah. There's so many cool things going on. And I, and I love the sort of that you know they're all going to meet up at the end. It's like something like Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels where like there's all these different trajectories of different characters and different plots and you know they're coming together, but you can't quite see how it's going to happen at the start. And then as it kind of goes on, you're like, oh, they're going to, yeah. And it's, oh, it's so good. Which one do we want to talk about first? Let's talk about Granny Weatherwax and the anvil in the blacksmith. Oh, so good. It's gorgeous. (laughs) She just puts her face on it and it starts to heat up and there's sparks and stuff. It's... Oh, yeah. It's an amazing scene. Fire again, huh? No. <laughs> <laughs> Can't get away from the fire. It's uh, deliberate, but yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. Have you guys talked about this before? Um, I haven't really thought about it until now, but you do get this recurring thing through all the books about Granny Weatherwax being worried about kind of going bad, you know, like in the way that the gingerbread house witch does. Mm. Um, and that she's always afraid of this thing that sort of might happen to her mind that she won't be able to prevent. Do we think there are parallels for that with dementia, with Alzheimer's? Mm, For Pratchett, personally? I think, I mean, he certainly has written more overtly about dementia by around this time, because like the second Johnny Maxwell book, which are these non-Discworld kids' books that he wrote, uh, explicitly the the Johnny Maxwell character has a a grandmother who's 
like suffering from dementia in a very Alzheimer's kind of way. Mm. But his diagnosis wasn't until quite a few years after this, so he had no idea. Okay, sure. But it is genetic, so it may be that it did run in his family and so he has some experience of it from a parent or grandparent. So it could be, but I think that comes in more in the later books. But that's an interesting way to look at it, yeah. I just am always fascinated by this thing with Granny of like, that that she's she worries that it'll just be out of her control and that she all she can do is stay as sharp as she is but that it will be like almost like an external thing that happens to her and this this book and this vampire moment is really only a brief kind of dalliance with that compared to some of those other ones like um is it which is abroad with her sister that's kind yeah. of the cinderella one yeah um yeah i just had not thought about it before but this you know external worry of like a um, and a, a physical or a mental illness that's maybe in your family history that you're like, it's come for me and I have to be really careful yeah, about yeah. what I do. That's really interesting because I hadn't thought of it that way before, but it does make a lot of sense. I think there's a few things you could read into it. Like there are like fears of things that you've glimpsed from your family that you might worry are in your future, not necessarily one specific thing. Like there could be a lot of, there could be personality traits, there could be, Hoarding or hoarding. So I guess it could be specifically that or it could be a more general fear of things you might have in your future. To me, I'd always read it as, I don't think this is a comment on everyone having this, but I think perhaps there's a lot of people who worry that they are at heart a bad person who is managing to just be good. And if you let that slip for a moment, your true nature will come through. So I I always read Granny's sort of inner grapple as that because if she isn't constantly working to tamp down the natural bad side of herself, then she's worried that that will win through. Whether that is actually the case or not, I think is also unclear because she thinks that doesn't mean that's necessarily actually what's happening. Mm. Mm. I think there's also the thing that she, you know, she has great power and that power corrupts and it's like, well, she could do whatever she wanted. Yeah. And so the penalty for that is she has to choose not to do whatever she wants. She has to do what's right. And that's hard because it would be so much easier. It'd be nice. You know, it's like sort of light side, <laughs> dark side conversation. Yeah. It's also that thing like with um, nature documentarians, how they can never interfere. That's their whole rule. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They'll be like watching like a baby elephant, like getting left behind and being like, I just, if we just gave it some water and the rule is like, no, you must never. No. We're just here to like observe. <laughs> Not yeah, that Granny uh-huh. doesn't interfere, but you know she could be, she could interfere so much more, and she does often decide whether or not to um, weigh in, I guess, and how much. Yeah, it's also interesting the two natures thing as well because she's worried about having this dual nature within herself. She literally has a twin to represent g- going the other way. Like there's <laughs> yeah. already that exploration, mm. so it's kind of like extremely zoomed in and again in on herself when there's this external one that's already been explored. So it's just kind. of... Mm. Kind of interesting. I do like that in this one, they kind of finally answer the question of her ancestor. Like this, there is this answer she gets from the old count near the end of the book who says, oh yeah, she came to Uberwald. And she's like, what What happened? Oh, she staked me. <laughs> and she's like, yay, my grandmother wasn't a bad yeah. person. <laughs> ben did wonder whether Alison Weatherwax was in fact Black Alice. But no, Black Alice is Alice de Murridge. She's just the archetypal example of the witch who went bad, and the one that everyone thinks of, not just in Lanka, it seems, but across the disc. Despite what J.J. Abrams may think, not everyone powerful is related.
some of the weather waxes have gone evil. Mm. I could go evil. You know, and and most of the other weather waxes we've seen in the books are. Uh, like in one of the really early ones, the Arch Chancellor or one of the high art wizards at the Unseen University is a weather wax and he's pretty nasty. Yeah. And so when she comes back from that she starts she also has that conversation with Hodges about the Phoenix and how yeah. So they go to like um what is it? Not not the Owlery, but the The Muse. The, Discworld, the equivalent <laughs> of the Owlery to find <laughs> There's your Hogwarts showing through. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh no. Um <laughs> That sounded ruder than I meant it to. to find, I'm so yeah, sorry. How dare you? That is it is a genetic condition. Um, <laughs> to work out which of the other birds the Phoenix has taken the the shape of, right? Because mm, that's yeah. such an interesting thing that I've never thought about too, which is like how does a phoenix know what it's supposed to look like because it never meets its parent? And there's that implication that the thing that he didn't think through is thinking about all the survival tactics that a phoenix would have and he never thinks, oh, and it would look like an, just another bird. Another bird, yeah. Until it, you know, has to reveal its phoenix itself, um, which is cool. And it's such a creepy, like, it's a creepy image because they put the hood on the bird yeah. and they keep referring to how it still looks directly at you even though it can't see. And there's a little bit of light, like, leaking out because it's, like, little flames and, oh, it's so good. Yeah, I it's love great. It. Once they've got the phoenix, that's when Granny and Oates head off on their pilgrimage across mm-hmm. country to go to the castle because she's sure that's where they're going. Meanwhile, that's where Magra and Nanny end up because they've taken the magpie's coach and their path is blocked going another direction. They have to go into Uberworld and the the old vampire count had fixed it so that anyone going along that road, their coach would break down and they'd have to go to the castle for help. It's a very Rocky Horror kind of. There's a yeah. light at the Frankenstein place kind of moment, which Especially I love. Especially the castle being called Don't Go Near the... <laughs> yeah. Don't so, Go Near the Castle. So And good. Don't Go Near the Parking Garage 20 kilometers yeah. away. <laughs> Those signs are hilarious. So they're on the way to the castle. And they're with um, Igor too, which is adds so much fun to this little journey. Yeah. Such a good character. Yeah. And I think he's our first Igor, but the first of many. Uh, and they're all so good. Mm. Um, and, uh, I mean, look, aren't they all really one or all many, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's you so don't many. Just meet one Igor. It's, yeah. But there's so many good gags about, like, it's, oh, yeah, I've got good ears. And he's like, well, we don't all get to choose, <laughs> which is oh, such a good gag. But, yeah, they're all on their way there. But I think the most significant journeys there are really Granny and Oates and Agnes, who uh, Vlad approaches and tries to, like, woo her to, like, no, come on, you want to be a vampire. Check out how cool it is to fly. And he does mm. all the flying, which is a very modern vampire thing. You know, Dracula never flew unless he turned into a bat. But, you know, you see vampires flying and stuff like the Lost Boys. So it's something that comes in, like, in the 80s and 90s. Um, and they're flying around all over the joint. Uh, and they go to the town of Escrow, where the magpies say, this is where our plan worked. Everybody feels safe. They actually use the phrase, they've exchanged freedom for security. Mm. And I have to say, I don't think he really states explicitly enough what the arrangement is in that town. Like, it's left a bit too vague for my taste. But from what I read into it, instead of what would happen before, which was the vampire would just sort of descend on at random and maybe bite somebody or spirit them off to the castle to turn them into a vampire, and they never knew when it would happen, so they always had to board up their windows and be scared. They've just talked to everyone and just said, we're vampires, we live here, we're going to drink from all of you at some point so let's just arrange that and then you don't have to be scared of it and when we turn up we'll do a lottery we'll make it fair 
to me, it has a real Hunger Games moment. Just yes. as a volunteerist tribute where it's just like, don't worry, we're at the top of this food chain and we've created a system that's like not ideal, but better for, you know, it's this whole the greater good where it's like one of you will suffer all of the suffering, but the rest of you will have basically no suffering. <laughs> and they're about as happy as the people of District 12 as well. <laughs> which yeah. is- <laughs> Uh, which Agnes sees through straight away. Like, the Count is like, yes, this works great. It's fine. Everything's great. And and Agnes is like, no, these people are miserable on the inside. I mean, sure, they don't have to have bars on their windows, but they know how gross this is. Isn't it like an extension of the asking the husband to choose which one dies out of his partner and the unborn baby? It's like they will carry the suffering for longer than experience an unexpected quick suffering outside of their control. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're asking them to become complicit in it and to be involved rather than it being something that happens to them. It's like, no, you're going to agree that this is how it is now. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's cool. Hmm. Um, Well, it's not cool. It's horrifying. But (laughs) (laughs) But as a writing thing, like it's done well. Yeah, it's a cool bit of writing. Also, Um, like another, as we said earlier, big parallel to COVID in the UK of Boris Johnson literally being like, uh, look, we'll lose some old people, you know, but this way no one has to be locked up in their house or wear a mask. Like it's just insane. Or some of you may die, but it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. Mm. Thank you, Bodo. Back to to Shrek again. Yeah. (laughs) And this is where Agnes thinks she's been turned and she wakes up and they're doing all the remedies on her, right? The lemon in the mouth, and but it's an yeah. orange because they didn't have a lemon. Or At least they haven't cut her head off yet like the other vampires. Because yeah. <laughs> it's also where the vampires start acting real weird. They start fighting with each other. They stop getting along. They can't really fly very well. And the villagers notice this and they're like, this is our one chance. And in fact, the mayor is the one who kicks it off because he gets his mayoral chain of office and like tries to strangle the count with it, for which he gets like broken in half by his vampire strength. It's quite awful. But the villagers are like, there's something wrong with him. Like, get him, get him. And there's a mob and a whole big fight. And that's when Vlad bites Agnes as they're trying to get away. Mm. Um, which, yeah, is the beginning of something weird happening to the vampires. There's a, a few hints of it, particularly with Vlad a bit earlier, but it's, I, I love that. But yeah, they, they keep thinking she's a vampire, but she's not. And then she still makes her way to the castle. I can't remember how she gets there, but everybody ends up at the castle. Well, she joins up with the mob because the mob are like, this is our chance. Maybe we can get rid of them all together. We're going to go to the castle. And she's like, well, I better come with you. And uh, there's a nice little detail in there where she's like, how can you beat them? They're flying. And they're like, well, they didn't look like they could fly very fast. Plus, we can cut through the woods where the werewolves live because they're not interested in chasing us because we're not interesting enough. We're too slow. But they don't get along with the vampires very well. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. A nice bit of uh, narrative explanation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I enjoyed that. But shall we skip straight to the Home Alone vampire yes. sesh? I think that is great. But should we talk a little bit about Granny and Oates's pilgrimage? Because it is kind of amazing. It's possibly, I don't know, it, it's hard to pick a favourite in any Pratchett book, but I think it is one of the best bits of the book. It is really beautiful, the kind of discourse between them about, you know, faith and whatever. For me, it also... And maybe this is more when she gets to the castle and she's confronted with the vampires. But it's like that Wesley and the Princess Bride thing of being like, I'm mostly dead. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that beautiful moment at the end of the Princess Bride where he's like, yeah, maybe I'm dead. Or maybe I'm just like lying on the bed because it's comfortable. Or maybe I do like the fortitude to stand. You don't know. Like, it's just this. And the beautiful thing, too, in that whole walk of like her needing him to pretend that she's helping him. And just the way that he plays along with that just makes him so likable. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's great. It's really great. But yeah, I think uh, the Home Alone section 
where they're dispatching the vampires because the vampires arrive at the castle mm. um, to be greeted by thrown bottles of holy water because Nanny and Margaret have been able to just tool up. Like, they've just, like, armed themselves <laughs> to the teeth because the old vampire count believed in being fair to his victims. So he had all kinds of anti-vampire stuff in his <laughs> own castle, which I thought was a delightful way to explain it. And it works on them. Like, they hit... Um, this is one of my favourite puns in the whole book. The, they hit one of the vampires, and his vampire name is Cryptifer. So good. <laughs> which is it's one of the best things ever. Um, but he gets burned up in some uh, holy water. It uh, sets him on fire, and he dies. The vampires are like, oh, no, whatever's happening to us is making us susceptible. But the Count is like, adamant, no, we can do this. And when they get inside, they can't do it. All the junior vampires are getting picked off by, like, the bucket of holy water on the door and the like weird like trap with the stake that springs and oh yeah it's very home alone vibes or like the rock picking off like a whole team of soldiers in the scorpion king yeah (laughs) yes that is uh, not the reference that i would have thought of but i agree that it is it is like that yes so I'm just thinking about The Rock because he recently tore some gates off his own house because there was a power cut and he needed to get to work. So, so great. He's just recovered from COVID. He has? I didn't know he had it. Oof. His whole family had it. Golly oh, God. wow. They can still rip a gate off its hinges. So. <laughs> There's nothing. He can't be stopped. That's why he's The Rock. Unlike the vampires who all get killed except for like the family pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Basically a whole lot of stuff happens in this sequence. Scraps unfortunately gets killed which we've talked about. Because once they're all together, like once Granny and Oates arrive and, and Nanny and Igor and uh, are there, Magrat is hiding in the crypt in the bottom of the castle uh, to be safe with the baby. Classic. But then Oates says, how safe can it be? Like the thing everyone knows about vampires is they could turn into mist. Yes, the Countess does get through the lock as mist, but Magrat traps her in a jar with a garlic. Throws <laughs> <laughs> it down the well. It's so good. Meanwhile, Igor is waking up someone that I'd been waiting to meet for most of the book as soon as they were like, oh, yeah, they don't really die. Um, he's dropping some blood onto a pile of ashes. And the old <laughs> count is back. Yes. Oh, that is great. Yeah. Oh. And then also my favorite action movie reveal of Granny Weatherwax just calmly drinking the cup of tea as she arrives. Oh. oh. And she does that thing where she pretends she's a frail old woman again and someone brings her a chair to sit on and she sits down with a cup of tea. And the vampires, who by this stage have started saying things like, tea, I've got to drink tea, which is something that I I felt on a very... (laughs) You know Mm -hmm. when people say, I feel attacked by this very relatable content? Yes. This was me and the vampires (laughs) craving tea. (laughs) Because she eventually reveals what she's done. She couldn't mentally get through the Count's defences, so she didn't. Instead, she put her mind into her own blood. And so when they drank her blood, as she puts it, one of the best lines in the book... I haven't been vampired. You've been weatherwaxed. Oh, so <laughs> like, good. Oh. What a good plan. Yeah. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> that is hilarious, though. Oh, it was so good. And the way that the, all the vampires are staring at the tea as she's stirring it, <laughs> and then she throws it on the floor, and then later on she reveals they don't even have any tea. It's a vampire castle. I just stirred some mud into some water. All right, that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> oh, so good. <laughs> And this basically is the end of the Count's plan. Like, he can't really recover from this, although he refuses to give up because he is acting like Granny. So he's not only craving tea, but he refuses to give up. He's fighting with his own family and he wants a big showdown and he gets one. But as he is holding the baby and Magrat hostage and 
Granny's like, I'm not worried because I could never harm a child. So I know you can't because now you have to behave like me. He tries to leave the castle and this is Oates' big moment. Earlier on, Granny's told him to sharpen the axe in case she turns into a vampire and he's still got it with him. And uh, he has a bit of a back and forth where the Count tells him that's not even a holy symbol, the axe. And he just says, oh, and then he just has this moment of inspiration is let's make it into one and cuts his head off. And it's so good. Oh, so good. A real um, Neville moment. Sorry, keep. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're right, though. It was. Oh, yeah. And then you kind of get the wrap up, you know. Vlad tries to get Agnes on board and she's just like, nah, not having a bar of you. And the old Count, after making friends with all of the descendants of villagers he used to know from hundreds of years ago, promises to teach Vlad and Lacrimosa the old ways <laughs> so that they won't be jerks. And then they all turn into magpies and fly off, which I just, oh, I love that. And actually, one thing I didn't mention before, when I read this book for the first time, I didn't know that magpies were not just an Australian thing. And I was kind of surprised that they were such a big deal in a book by an English writer drawing on all these European sort of folklore. Yeah. And I was like, wait a minute. And then I looked it up. I was like, wait, of course. Like so many things in Australia, we've got magpies here, but they're just a local bird that looks like magpies in other countries. So Europeans called them magpies, but they're, they're different birds. Yeah, I looked up the folklore of magpies. They had this whole thing about demonic possession and stuff. There's all sorts of stories and things that people believed about magpies, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to sitting down and just reading through a whole Wikipedia whole of that. But yes. there, was like, there was a church that started, started a rumor that magpies carry a drop of the devil's blood in their tongues. And so there was kind of like all kinds of stuff that is bonkers. And I'm like, this is what people do when they don't have TV. They they go, what <laughs> what can entertain us? Well, look, there's a bird. Um. <laughs> All right, what can be wrong with this bread? I know it's it's got the devil's blood in its tongue. That's okay. Um, now that constellation, that's three stars. That's a belt. All right. Yeah. So. And I love a good alternate form for vampires. You know, like bats are just done. Magpies are so cool. Yeah. Next time I play a vampire in a game, I want to I want to be able to turn into magpies. If there was an evil bird, it'd be minor birds. Those birds are jerks. Magpies are fine. For our non-Australian listeners, if you're not familiar with Australian magpies, I mean, they are the terror of the skies during mating season because they're very territorial and they're not afraid to swoop human beings, by which I mean fly directly at you and bury their beak in your head in a very dangerous and frightening way. Um, But they also will learn to recognize friendly humans and make friends with them and be nice to you. Like, they're very smart and they're very... They're just the best. Um, yeah, just please please learn about Australian magpies. They're incredible. Also, there's all this interesting stuff at the moment about how magpies aren't coping with us wearing masks. Oh, huh. yeah. I got swooped by a magpie near series the other day, and my friend that I was working with was like, you have to take off your mask to show you're not a threat. And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> there's just no way I'm doing that. But apparently it's, it's a really um, bird enthusiast. I'm really fascinated at the moment by this idea that, like, we're going to change the behavior of magpies in the same way that, you know, like you wear like a helmet with cable ties on it when you're a kid or it's a very Mm. Australian thing to have um, the school I went to in Brisbane, an ice cream bucket with eyes on it just that you all had to wear walking between classes. Apparently part of that is that, like I said, they make friends with people, but if you're wearing a mask, they can't recognize you. No, exactly. they think you're somebody else. Yeah. Is this why people think Australia is not a real place? Yes, this is exactly why. (laughs) Because the birds want to kill you unless they know you're a friend, in which case they like you a lot. And you're like, no, that's not what we mean. Ice cream will protect you. Yeah. 
Well, it's like there was that meme that's like what visitors to Australia are afraid will kill them. And there's like a picture of a crocodile and a spider and a snake. And then it's like what Australians are actually afraid of. And there's a picture of a magpie. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, it's it's true. It's true. But yeah, this is the culmination of the book. And then we get this sort of nice denouement, the, the come down from that, where now everyone knows what Granny's trick was. She's paying for it. She's just exhausted. She's nearly died like six times. She had to make the big choice between the darkness and the light. And so she has a bit of a snooze. Meanwhile... Oates has, like, found new religious, not fervor, but, like, appreciation for just the world around him. And he's like, you know what? You decide what's holy. Like, you don't have to choose between what all these other people tell you. You can find it in the world around you, which I thought was really lovely kind of place for him to get to. I also love that he has that service and he ends up playing the hymns that are, like, the hummable tunes instead. (laughs) Just from, like, I remember, like, growing up, you know, Catholic and going to Mass and it blowing my mind the first time we had this, like, um, couple that would sometimes do the music at Sunday night mass, which is like the cool mass. <laughs> and <laughs> okay. There was, there's like a rock version of the Our Father that gets played. And this really? is what this made me think of. Yeah, because you learn like the hymn version. And then the rock version is like, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And it's, it's like, Whoa. I just imagine Mightily Oates being like, Maybe embarking on the cool church, like sort of your like Hillsong vibe. Oh no! <laughs> Just as yeah, an that's option awesome. of in- enticing the masses. So great. That was great. That was so great. And I, I particularly also liked that before he's allowed to do it. Like Nanny, sort of grudgingly, is like, "You're all right, and if you ever need a meal, you'll get a meal at any og household." And you're like, "That's a big deal. <laughs> like that's a yeah. hundred yeah. places across the ramp tops where you can get food for the night and somewhere to sleep." And then Agnes brings him the thing for his boil. <laughs> Yeah, because she's uh, now this. I'm interested to know what you thought of this because there is that thing where she's taken a shine to him. Like initially, she thinks he's like very punchable, like you were saying. But by the end of the book, she's like, "Oh, you're all right, actually, and you're kind of good looking, apart from that boil. Maybe I could give you something for it." But he's still going to leave because he's decided his destiny is to take the word of Om into Uberwald and see if he can do some good there. But how did you feel about that? I'm tired of there always being a love story shoehorned in, but it also did feel like the natural thing for them. Like I feel like it wasn't written with that in mind necessarily, the way that they interacted and how they were written, that made sense. So perhaps the end goal wasn't in sight when the characters were put together, whereas sometimes it feels like it's the other way around. Hmm. Also, what we haven't covered that I totally forgot is also that Mightily Oates is impervious to the vampires because... Mm. Oh, yeah, because he's in two minds about he's everything. He's in two minds about everything. And mm. and that is interesting, too, where it's like just because these two characters have this specific thing in common, to me, is like that doesn't necessarily mean you should end up together. So I like that they don't. Um, mm. But it is like a nice common ground between them, I think, throughout. Yeah. I like that Granny also recognises that there's more Agnes's out there than even Agnes thinks. Like, she thinks she's unique because she's got this other voice in her head. But like we were saying, lots of people do. Mm. They just don't give it a name and cause it to come alive. Yes. The boil thing is interesting as well because um, Nanny had that whole thing about you shape your husband or you can turn a man into something else. Like, And she talked about how like she made her husband bathe or whatever. And that's kind of, to me, taps into that as well because like, she's shaping him. But he's not – because he is kind of a romantic interest but not really. Mm. That kind of brings us, though, to the end of the book. The, the Really, the very last thing that happens is we get this nice view of the kingdom going back to normal, including Granny just watching over everyone by borrowing an eagle and then an owl and amending her sign so that it says, I still ain't dead, which <laughs> was uh, pretty great. 
again, I think that we're in the period of Pratchett's books where he's really absolutely on his stride and pretty much everyone is great. And yet there's still books I haven't read for 20 years. So rereading each one has been a a real delight for me. And this one is, is a real highlight. I really love it. Yeah, absolutely. It's so nice to revisit. And it's just, it feels like friends. I can't think of any other book that I would read. I was literally lying in bed reading it and I went, oh, death. Yeah. <laughs> Out yeah. loud. My boyfriend was like, you okay? I was like, yeah, fine. But it is just like seeing an old friend, you know, like you don't imagine that you'll feel such akin to like, oh, the death of rats or like, you know, these these beautiful characters that you uh, grew up with. And for me, my dad got me onto Terry Pratchett and that's like, you know, our, a big kind of bond between us is that we both read and love these books so much. Oh. So it is a nice one too, because you do get so many of the best characters in this one, which is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. So I had that moment repeatedly, but especially in the final bits where Scraps and Death were meeting, it's like these two charming characters and Death just cannot deal with, with him at all. <laughs> and so like, that's how we get him coming back to life. Cause it's like, oh, maybe he can go back. It's like, you're, you're an adequate dog. Um, because he's trying to do like you're a good boy, yeah, yeah, in death talk. <laughs> so it's just so good. Yeah, oh, so good. He's very definitely a cat person, not a dog person. Poor old death. Mm-hmm. Um, are there are there any bits that we haven't talked about, or any quotes people want to read out before we get onto some listener questions? I think I brought up my favorites throughout the podcast. I brought up my two favorites, but this third one that I'd forgotten about, which says the smug mask of virtue triumphant could be almost as horrible as the face of wickedness revealed. Oh, I had um, that one highlighted and I put a note on it um, that just said Twitter. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I don't. um, Have you watched Catherine Ryan has a new show out called The Duchess? No, I haven't seen it oh, yet. No. There's a beautiful moment in it where she's talking to her nine-year-old daughter who is kind of trying to shame her about something. And she's like, Olive, do you know what we call it when women use feminism to oppress other feminism? And she just goes, white feminism? <laughs> she's like, well, yeah. But it is, it's that thing of like, you know, moral indignation is just jealousy with a halo where it's just like, mm. you're... Oh. Your virtue is as insufferable as someone's contempt sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are so many good bits, as always. I think there's only one that I really want to read out, and this is from The Journey of Granny and Oates. And there's so many good bits in their conversation where she's just sort of poking his belief and going, you don't know what you really think. I'm going to poke you and make you figure it out, is basically how I read that whole conversation. But there's great bits where she talks about the fact that Omnians now don't put people to the sword or set them on fire. They have debates. And Oates says, well, there are two sides to every question. What do you do when one of them's wrong? The reply came back like an arrow. (laughs) And I'm like, yes. yes. More social media problems, right? (sighs) So many. And the press and the forced balance in the public media. and oh. But after that, there's also an exchange that I think is really great. They're talking about the nature of sin. Oates says, it's not as simple as that. It's not a black and white issue. There are so many shades of grey. Nope. <laughs> Pardon? There are no greys, only whites that got grubby. I'm surprised you don't know that. And sin, young man, is when you treat people as things, including yourself. That's what sin is. It's a lot more complicated than that. No, it ain't. When people say things are a lot more complicated than that, they mean they're getting worried that they won't like the truth. People as things, that's where it starts. Oh, I'm sure there are worse crimes, but they start with thinking about people as things. And you're like, that is, that is like one of those passages that kind of sums up Pratchett's idea of humanism in like one short passage. Mm. And 
and there's so many other good bits, but I'm not going to read any more out because we we will run out of time. We'll run out of time. <laughs> yeah, so um, we got quite a lot of questions this time, so I reckon we'll crack straight into it. Ben, what's the first one? We got a couple from Grace via email. One of those is that she talks about how Perdita, before she's able to completely take over Agnes, she takes control of her left arm, and she thought, is this to do with the whole representation of right brain versus left brain? You know, with the idea that you're right-brained, that's more creative and left-brained people are more analytical. Do we think that Perdita is the creative side of Agnes? I had not even considered that while reading the book. And that might be because I've read enough about sort of um, neurology to know that the whole right-brain, left-brain thing is not really a thing. But it is a very popular idea in popular culture. So do we think there's something to that? I don't think Perdita's the creative side. Given that she can't even sing. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's a fair comment, yes. Even if it's not written as such, I love this interpretation of it. Like, it's a very cool idea. Like you, Ben, it's not quite as divided like that. So, like, I don't think it's literally that. But that doesn't mean that someone wouldn't have written it that way. Um, whenever someone says left arm, I'm like, heart attack. So that's kind of, that's where I went. <laughs> but I love this. <laughs> yeah. Grace also wondered if she was the only person who's read both Twilight and Discworld. I think... We have established today that is not the case. <laughs> no. But when she was reading it, um, she wondered if the ho- whole way that Vlad is fascinated with Agnes, whether that kind of parallels Edward and Bella and the reason why Edward in Twilight is fascinated with Bella. Do you, th- do you see any parallels there? Is that, does that remind you of, the, of that relationship? Isn't it always like men chasing women who are, aren't like other girls? Or like, I don't know if it's necessarily a vampire thing. It's like the... Was it the joy of the chase? Like, the, like it's just amplified because they are predators hunting down something that doesn't want to be caught. So that's kind of like because mm. vampire mythology is just amplifying human nature. Yeah, but isn't it a valid parallel? But I haven't read both, so yeah. There's lots of there's lots of great parallels. Like all the stuff about um, vampires not usually having children is really interesting because from memory in Twilight they're not their actual children, but they live as sort of like a family unit. The, yeah five of them or six of them i think it is but then bella has a baby a yeah vampire baby. exactly which is very painful and then the baby who's also called esme the baby has renesme renesme i knew it was I a terrible name but i couldn't remember which so one terrible fact i remember from those that's, books is someone that's taking it to up me. real estate in your brain that someone's birthday <laughs> isn't um yeah, but- <laughs> yeah. there's lots of parallels i think all that kind of like yeah you're different you're like less susceptible you're i don't know it's yeah there there absolutely are but it is yeah. also still that thing of like a man who can't tell you a lot about the woman that he's with <laughs> just the way that she relates to him yeah it's kind of gross mm. we've got some other great questions about the book we've got a couple about the way that agnes is written about now we talked about agnes when we covered masquerade and zoe via our discord mentioned that and then asked if this book changed our perception of the writing around her in any way and I think this is a really interesting question because we talked a lot about this in Masquerade because there's almost never a mention of Agnes turning up in a scene that doesn't take an opportunity to make a fat joke. And in this book, it's a, it is a bit different. And one of our other listeners on the Discord did point out that a lot of the time in this book, most of the time probably, it is coming from a character in the book. It's not coming from the narrative. Mm. I thought about this because I'm trying to be very aware of fat phobia and certainly is one of the things that you always remember about Agnes, particularly in Masquerade. The one I think about is Agnes stopped, most of Agnes stopped. It took a while for some of the outlying regions of Agnes to stop. Is that I was like, 
how often are other characters described by their appearance? And the answer is mostly very often, I think. Like, oh, maybe it isn't. I don't know. It is a really valid point that you rarely get Agnes without a mention of Agnes's size, which is usually a joke. Yeah, and you do get a lot about Nanny being portrayed as portly, which is quite – she fit much more is put into this kind of jolly category, even though she's not – she's bawdy, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because – Lacrimosa, she set up as hating, like, hate at first sight, and Lacrimosa is repeatedly described as being thin. Like, they make a point of pointing out that she is thin repeatedly, not just once, not when she's introduced. It's a thing. And I wasn't sure if they were setting up, like, the fat girl hating the thin girl, or if it was because Lacrimosa reminds her of, say, Christine um, from Masquerade, who she's now sort of come around and realized was a bit shit, was very shit. So I thought that sort of deliberate contrasting was interesting and a bit sort of like when I kept coming across it. Also the thing too with Agnes is that it's always said inside every fat girl is a thin girl and a lot of chocolate and Padita is the thin girl. That's how it's described. So you also get this like equally as unhelpful like skinny bitch narrative. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah. Yeah, I would say yeah. it's yeah, I do have a lot of conflict about that because um it is very it's constant. <laughs> yeah, and not all of the characters get those jokes either. One of our other listeners, Bell, on the Discord, wanted to know why do we think Agnes gets the fat jokes, whereas Nanny, who is also portrayed as portly, as you say, doesn't really get those fat jokes. And how do we integrate those fat jokes about Agnes and the Kelder of the Nakmak Fiegel, who we barely mentioned? Um, she also gets some fat jokes there, but how do we integrate that into our understanding of Pratchett being a humanist? Actually, I've got a, I don't love saying this, but like a shitty view of that because it's shitty on multiple levels. Agnes is of an age where you're supposed to be attractive and fuckable. Mm. Um, whereas Nanny and the Kelder are older, they've become, they're mothers, they're grandmothers, etc. So we, it doesn't matter if they're attractive, that part of them is not important anymore. And that's also horrible. So. Yeah. Mm. I think that's part of it. That's why they don't get mocked, because it doesn't matter how they look. They're crones. Molokov was interested on our Discord about our casting ideas. Who would we want to play in a film version? The Count, Countess, basically the Magpie family. Who would we cast as all of those? And who would we want to play Mightily Oats? I just was picturing them as Downton Abbey, so I would love to see (laughs) Lord Grantham as the Count and Lacrimosa as Lady Mary or Edith, depending on how, (laughs) how we want to tilt that character. But yeah. What a grand piece of stunt casting that would be if you could get the entire family cast as people from Downton Just Abbey. Just Downton Abbey. That's so <laughs> it wonderful. Would work, actually. Yeah. Yeah. What about I Oats? Think... Who would we cast as Oats? Oh, um I kind of feel like someone who can be a bit feckless but also bring a bit of steel. Like I think Martin Freeman is not young enough, but I think he could do a good job maybe. Oh yeah. Or Mackenzie Crook, oh. maybe Mackenzie Crook. Okay, Luke McGregor. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> from Rosehaven for yes. our listeners who don't know. He would know, be a very sweet mightily oats. Oh, he would be amazing. <laughs> oh, that's a good pick. I love it. What would be your vampire normcore activity? This is from Red of the Endless on Twitter. So if you were going to be a vampire pretending to be a normal person, what would you do? What would be your normal activity that you'd get into? Or kombucha? <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I've already got mine. It's board games, right? <laughs> I think that's that's definitely counts. I think upcycling furniture. Ooh, a ve- <laughs> yeah, making soy candles. Oh, <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh, that's pretty awful. Um, and, um, oh, no, making air plants for my friends. Oh yeah. Oh okay yeah. 
like transplanting spider plants or something. That would be cool. Like the they can you know like the balls of plants that don't. You know, it's, a, mm. it's a thing. My airplane um, it just dies repeatedly. It dies. It briefly revives. It dies again. Oh, they shouldn't be. Re- they shouldn't exist. No. That's probably for the best. Yeah. Oh. They're the French bulldog of plants. <laughs> <laughs> we get two different people. Karen Hash on Twitter and Nicola on Instagram both ask. Basically, if we could pull a Granny Weatherwax and make vampires crave something other than blood, what would it be? I mean, I think for me it is tea. I mean, that is the if it's got to be the thing that I crave, it, it has to be tea. Are we trying to win a battle or are we trying to be funny? Uh, it's up to you. <laughs> it's literally a question I ask myself every day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, feels. Oh. Feels. Yes. I mean, if I was trying to win a battle, I'd make them crave each other's blood. Um, Ooh, a strong genie-style loophole. Well done. <laughs> um, wishing for more and- wishes, wishing for infinite genies. <laughs> <laughs> What's funnier than vampires wanting tea, though? Like, nothing. Uh, I don't know. Is it making them crave something that's very difficult to come by so that, like, they remain unsated? Or is it making them crave something that's everywhere so that they're, like... They're not bothered? I don't know. I was talking to my friend Sally about this and she said, oh, well, you know, if it has to be something that we crave, it's like uh, craving external validation. And I'm like, (laughs) oh, if we're going to go down that road, uh, for me, it'll also be like the love of a father figure. Like, it's just, there's so many sad things you could make (laughs) the the brief high of applause. (laughs) Yeah. They want to become Instagram influencers, but the mirror thing also applies so they can never take selfies. (laughs) A very okay. strong, yeah, well done. A strong That's choice. a curse. That's a curse. I love it. Belle, via Discord, asked, we have steaks, holy water, holy symbols, lemons, beheadings. Are there any vampire tropes Pratchett didn't include? Was it just straight up setting them on fire? Like, that's that's one. Yeah. Like, no, the sun sets them on fire, but. They mentioned the mirror thing in passing, but it, it doesn't really play a part in the story, which I thought was interesting given Granny's history with mirrors. Mm. and the stuff that happens in Witches Abroad, but maybe that's why he avoided it, because he's like, I've done mirrors, I don't need to do any more mirror stuff. I can't think of any favourites that weren't in there. He was pretty thorough. Yeah, I mean, I guess you don't really have... Granny kind of does this, but you don't have the vampire with the soul archetype, like your angel kind of business. Yeah, they're just bad. Yeah, which is actually a good segue into another question, because this one was directed specifically at you, Liz. Molokov on Discord asked... Where would you, Liz, slot in Buffy references and jokes? Well, just as a quick aside, my other option for the joke title at the beginning of the podcast was Granny the Vampire Stayer. Um, <laughs> That's pretty, it's pretty good. That's yeah, I'm pretty, pretty, good. pretty happy with that, but it's like quite a big spoiler. In terms of Buffy tropes, I mean, there's jokes you can make at different points. Like you would probably insert in like a joke about, don't you, do you have a soul or something when... Like, you'd have Agnes saying that to Vlad when he's trying to flirt with her. Like, that would be where you'd throw in a, you have a soul, or like, are you trying to pretend like you have a soul kind of Buffy reference there? Yeah. Um, kind of the closest they get to that is talking about how Agnes repeatedly sort of says that if she became a vampire, she wouldn't know good from evil, which I guess is kind of like being a demon in a way. If you wanted Perdita to have like a bitchy moment, you could make a joke about how in Buffy the vampires have a vampire face that's ugly and a normal human face and so she'd probably say something to Lacrimosa like you've got your vamp oh no it's just your normal face <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one maybe throwing a watcher sort of figure in there somewhere or even like a slayer kind of figure because we don't really have that mm. in in there like and that's actually kind of like a 
part of the folklore of having people who hunt vampires. Like that's not just a Buffy thing. So that's yeah. perhaps a trope that's missing. Yeah, that's a good point. There isn't the vampire hunter character. Like you've got the, it's all about the regular folk rising up, but there's no Van Helsing archetype, mm. you know, because Miley Oates is definitely not that. Uh, so that's interesting. Yeah, that is the that is the big one that's missing, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. And that, that answers both of them very nicely. Well done. <laughs> that was very good. Tidy. Put those two answers in one. I love it. This question from Ilbion on Twitter, what would your awkward middle name be? I mean, poor Margaret tried her best to avoid it. Now, Ilbion was the person who said it reminded them of, of Cake Rex. So thank you, Ilbion. I couldn't get that out of my head once you said that. I've kind of got an awkward, as in like, it's not an awkward middle name. My middle name is my Chinese name. And because I don't look Chinese, despite being half Chinese, I guess mine would be like Elizabeth, my Chinese name, brackets, I'm Eurasian, flux. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I, what, would, what would mine be? Uh, are we talking like that you got when you were born? Because mine would be depressing. It would be kind of like Benjamin quick get him christened because he's probably going to die in within the hour Mackenzie. Mm. like it would not be it would be bad at the moment it would be ben yes i've not been able to have a haircut for six months Mackenzie. because <laughs> <laughs> like, as one of my friends recently said i feel like you have suffered more from the absence of hairdressing than anyone else i know and i was simultaneously <laughs> offended and very seen uh it was um <laughs> We did get a few questions this month that aren't so much about this book or even Pratchett books in general, So, but we're going to we'll do our best to answer them. Sven on our Discord asked, what is your opinion about writing trends? Like a lot of vampire books after one series got popular or piles of young survival books or piles of mild smut for housewives. I think we all know what book he is referring to becoming a trend there. Harry Potter, yeah. If it, Yeah. Uh, if you're writing that sort of thing, are you in it for the money? Uh, and you following the trend or are you in it for your vision? And he, he kind of asked this in the context of saying that we are writers ourselves. So what do you think? Do you think people who are writing those books, writing the popular coattails, are they in it for the money or is that what they really want to write? It's a complicated answer, but I think it is a little from column A and a little from column B. Part of the thing I think is why, like why we see a wave of them afterwards is people can't write books that fast. I think perhaps one being popular opens the door to that genre and people who've already written those books or who are already writing in that category have a higher chance of being published than they did previously. Mm. So I think there is perhaps more of your in it for your vision than people going vampire books sell, I'll write a vampire book. Yeah, that makes sense. Most people don't write a book to make money because if you've written any books, you know that it's not a very good way to make money. (laughs) I mean, you know, unless you sell like Harry Potter numbers of copies or Dan Brown number of copies, like you're not you're not going to become rich. Yeah, I think like, but it is both because there would be people who are already writing in that area who got opportunities they wouldn't otherwise have had. But it also would spark off people writing in those areas because they're interested in them, and there would be a subset of that who are writing because they hope to make money. But I think it is a little bit of all of it. Yeah. But the specifically writing something you wouldn't otherwise have written in a topic you otherwise wouldn't like, I think that would actually be probably be quite small. Yeah. And I mean, to take some of the specific examples, like I think vampire books have always been popular in one way or another. You know, they they rise and fall. I mean, when I was in high school, it wasn't Twilight. It was Anne Rice. You know, the popular things in our culture cycle around, like they come back again. But also like the piles of mild smut books, like 
there were already thousands and thousands of those already written and they were perfectly good and people were really enjoying them. And then one got phenomenally popular because it broke through into sort of a bit more mainstream attention and everyone noticed all the other ones that were already there, I think is, is kind of what happened if we're talking about Shades of Grey. Mm. Yeah, I think I think there's a bit of that too, where it's not so much that these things come about because of that. It's that they were always there, but now we're looking at them, you know. Mm. But that was a great question. Thank you, Sven. Grace Lee on Instagram gave us a comment, and we feel a bit underqualified to comment on it because we haven't read the book she's talking about, but she said, not directly related to Carpe Jugulum, but I'm reading the Aragon series, and I feel Angela the Herbalist is how Magrat would like to be viewed by the world. And I think that's kind of an interesting angle. I want to know more about this character. So if you've read the Aragon books, please do get on the hashtag, which is Pratchat36 for this episode. Let us know what you think about that comparison. There is one question I think we're going to finish with before we say goodbye for today, which is from Ahab the Whaler on Twitter, who asked, what happens when you run out of Pratchett's novels? This is a genuine question about your future plans. Really, our intention is that when we run out of Pratchett things to talk about, that's it. The podcast is over. Hmm. Like This is a project that has a beginning and an end. And that would mean that when that time eventually comes, we'll wind it up. I mean, I think there's a few extra things we could talk about. A lot of people have been asking us if we will cover Rihanna Pratchett's book that was recently published. Mm. It's a fighting fantasy book, which is kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure book, but mashed up with a bit of Dungeons and Dragons. I definitely want to read it. I think we could talk about that on the podcast. There's a lot of the short stories we still haven't covered. There's still a bunch of books. Like, we're probably a bit more than halfway now, but not that much more. But yeah, I... Honestly, our plan is to talk about every Pratchett book and then wrap it up. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we could do a different podcast on a different topic, um, potentially, but I think with this one, we wouldn't drag it out because everyone hates like when a show has five extra seasons when it should have stopped in season four. Like, everyone hates that. Yeah. yeah. And there's a definite end point. Um, like this one, I think you've got to respect that. Yeah. And so, this is... A... We have to respect that. Yeah. And this is a big project. Like we knew going into this... That it was going to be a big deal to do, not just even just doing the Discworld books is a big deal. I don't, you know, again, props to all the other Discworld reread podcasts that are out there. That's a big enough project as it is, and deciding we're going to do all of them is huge. And I think you know, if we carry through with our current plan, which is to end with the Shepherd's Crown, it's going to be a huge emotional point to end on. And I don't think we'll want to come back after that. I think we'll feel like it's the end. Yeah, we're not vampires. No, we're going to come back in fifty years. No. <laughs> We won't, we won't get thrown off the edge of the disc <laughs> or float around in the ocean for a while. Uh, but, you know... Well, I don't like to think about it, so... <laughs> uh, yeah, you just, uh, just pretend it's not going to happen. We'll just go forever. And, of course, you can always listen to the old episodes again. I've been doing that recently, and they're quite listenable. We've tried not to make them too topical. Or we do a podcast where we listen to our old episodes about each specific book and then do an episode about the podcast, and it just gets real meta. Oh my god! It's the inse- we, we need the Inception soundtrack. Uh, chat, chat. <laughs> oh god, it's too real. <laughs> it could happen. But that's it for questions. So that also means that's it for this episode. Jill, it's been so wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. I mean, we say coming. You're still in your your own home, uh, but I'm wearing um, are you? If people want to find out more about what you're up to and hear some of your work, where can they find you? I am at Gillian Cosgriff on most internets, Gillian with a G. 
Cos like a lettuce, Griff like a griffin. Uh, <laughs> not Cos Grove. Um, yeah, I have a band camp and a website and all that bizzo if you want to have a listen. And I have nothing on because coronavirus. <laughs> well, we'll link to all those things so our listeners can find you and enjoy some of your amazing songs. Thank you so much once again. Thank you. Uh, but we will be back next month, of course. And the reason we can come back every month until we are done and have read every book is thanks to our wonderful supporters. So thank you, everybody who's supporting us through Possible. Thank you, everyone who has rated and reviewed us in the Apple Podcast directory or whatever directory you happen to use. That is a great way to help us. If you want to support us and you haven't got the cash to sling us a few bucks a month, that's another thing you can do. Or just tell your friends who really like Terry Pratchett that we are a thing and that they might enjoy it. That also helps us out because the more people who listen, uh, the more people will sign up and the more sustainable it is for us to keep going to the end. Um, so mm. thank you everyone who has supported us uh, and thank you to everyone who listens as well because without your questions and feedback, there'd be no point in us doing this. But mm. specifically, we will be back next month to talk about a particular book and that book, Liz, is Da Bomb, would you say? Quite, quite literally, perhaps. Yes. Um, our next book is going to be Johnny and the Bomb. And joining us is returning guest, author Wilkes Darkus. It's going to be a lot of fun to have him back. He talked to us, of course, about one of Pratchett's early sci-fi novels last time. Uh, in fact, I, I would go so far as to say we made him read The Dark Side of the Sun because he did not enjoy it. So I hope he has a much better time with Johnny and the Bomb as we finish off the Johnny Maxwell trilogy. If you've got questions about that for next time, please send them to us via social media using the hashtag Pratchat37, or you can send us an email at chat at pratchatpodcast.com. But until next time, <laughs> please remember, I don't drink coffee. You've been listening to Pratchat, a monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Gillian Cosgriff. Pratchat is produced and edited by me, with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast, and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchatPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat36. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrors. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.